Hey folks, it's been a long time since I've hopped on the podcast. I was taking some time to reflect on exactly what I'm doing here. You know, it's been interesting. I grew up um, without really any exposure to recreation and, you know, just to define recreation, something that you do beyond your means for survival, right? You get a job so that you can um, feed yourself and house yourself, um, pay all your bills, clean your house, take care of your body, take care of any like social dues you have. Maybe you are in a relationship, you have children. Um, and then beyond that, like, what do you do with your time? You know, well, recreation is, um, voluntarily using your time, um, to pursue a goal that you enjoy. Just something you like snowboarding, rock climbing, painting, and those things could eventually, um, provide you with money in order to live and survive, but that's not the, doesn't have to be the aim originally. The aim is the pursuit itself. And I grew up in a world where recreation wasn't a part of lifestyle, where it was, you have to take care of yourself and the people around you. And, and anything you have left over is for, um, to do with it as you wish. And there's all these pleasures that exist in the world. And oftentimes people around me would just seek, you know, pleasures like we all do. And, and I do, my son do, we go eat ice cream, you know, go watch some movies. Um, there's other ways to spend your time. Learning new skills, um, putting yourself in uncomfortable situations, testing your knowledge, um, meeting new friends, right? The, when I moved from Idaho to Washington, I was really interested in picking up something recreationally. I've never had a consistent practice other than um, smoking cigarettes and smoking weed, um, attending holidays, and going to work, going to school, you know, because that was a thing that I should do. Um, but the, rec the notion of recreation kind of seemed lavish to me, like I couldn't afford, a, you know, a gym membership. And if I did, it would be because I had to be healthy. But the idea of just doing something because it was fun, paying for it like a bill consistently when I was already just barely scratching or getting by, living paycheck to paycheck, sometimes even a little less, seemed dumb to start some sort of recreation, especially with like martial arts. Like I should need to spend more time to, you know, maybe even pick up another job, but I decided to do really financially stupid thing, which was join a, a dojo and martial arts gym and learn about MMA and kickboxing, Muay Thai, um, pancreation, jujitsu. And it was the first time in my life, like sure. I, that I fell in love with a particular form of recreation. When I was a kid, I used to, you know, do BMX a lot. Um, and then I stopped when I was 10, but it seemed really far away and it wasn't very much a part of me. I was never nostalgic and wishing I'd go back to BMX. Um, 
when I did martial arts, it completely changed my life. And it didn't take long. Once it became a habit, like after, you know, three months in, um, it was the lens in which I saw the world. And there were a lot of underlying problems in my life that had showed up as challenges, you know, from being um, codependent, um, a lot of self-doubt, some confidence issues. I used to get sweaty in, like, in interviews. Had a lot of things that I was avoiding that made me feel uncomfortable. And it was through my recreation that I was kind of like I had to face them. And it was through my recreation that I learned what I was desiring in life. These, these feelings that I had no face for, no name. Um, and I learned how to bond with people and play with people and get close to them. And it helped my family relationships and, and my friendships and dealing with the conflict inside of myself and the conflict with other people. And recreation finally gave me, you know, a stronger sense of purpose. Like... I work for this paycheck so that I have the opportunity and the luxury to be able to go and do this martial arts thing so that I could afford it, you know, a gi finally. Like I wanted to take on more responsibility so that I could recreate more. And I sh even shared the recreation with my son and my, um, it gave me like a sense of purpose. And that's kind of where this podcast came in was, I never really had much of um, much role models in my immediate community who felt like I could relate with them, who I could reach out and touch or talk to. And moving to Washington, I got exposed to that. But then using this p platform, I've been able to connect with people who have partook in a variety of recreational activities beyond what I ever imagined were possible or accessible. And showed me that despite your financial position, despite your location, that there is a way to access these forms of recreation. And I've been proven time and time and again by listening to people who've come from all sorts of backgrounds, navigate their challenges and find themselves in love, in love with this way to spend their life, this way to share play with other people and it's beautiful because everything seems so out of reach for me and I don't really know what to do about people who are born in a situation that are provided with steeper challenges than me or in a in a place where they're they have obstacles that are harder than I could ever imagine but I'd hope that just talking about my own experience and listening to other people's and sharing that I could help because I know a lot of people in my life that are drowning and I'm sure you do too. Life is, life is hard. It has some of the sharpest teeth and none of us make it out alive. None of us make it out unscathed. And I'm so grateful for this podcast because it's, it's sincerely changed my life and it continues to change my life by introducing me to people who have done what I considered impossible, have done the things that I have never imagined that you could do with the time that is available, 
with the constraints that lie ahead. I have, I'm like an, I'm an idiot. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm like the most amateur of amateur in all these things that I pursue. You can name one thing that I do and I can name you a hundred people that I know who are better at it than me. I've never achieved mastery at anything. I barely scratch being an intermediate at some things. But I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to learn of all these perspectives from hardship to success, from love to pain and sorrow. After having some distance from the podcast, I realized how important it was to me, how I love having this place to share a platform where I can talk to people from a diverse amount of backgrounds. So moving forward. I'm excited to continue to share these stories and experiences from people all over the world with all different kinds of recreational interests with all of you. Uh, This week's episode is sponsored by the Waking Up app uh, by Sam Harris. It's available on uh, Android and iPhone. It's amazing. They have um, daily 10-minute meditation sessions where every day Sam Harris will walk you through um, meditation techniques, um, mindfulness techniques. It's very simple, easy to follow. He's taken out a lot of the woo-woo and put in the woo-hoo, if you know what I mean. (laughs) And there's even some great talks and um, some even meta-meditation for all of you heartless fools out there (laughs) that can help instill some more compassion and gratitude in your own life. And he provides a lot of concrete things that you can learn through experience. It's all experiential learning. And I just, I love that. It's so easy to connect with myself because I'm a big old lug head. <laughs> um, but you can check it out, the Waking Up app. Uh, they even have kids classes that are like five minutes in length. Like, it's, it's great. This week's episode is episode 127 of the Becoming Human podcast, and it features uh, Sol Workin. Sol Workin is a um, rock climber who has spent a lot of time climbing in the um, Cascades here in Washington, specifically the Stewart Range, putting up a bunch of first ascents and crushing it. He's also a, a nurse. He balances his recreation and job with raising his two little girls. In this episode, he tells his epic first descent um, of King Kong on Mount Stewart and in the Cascades and Gorillas in the Mist. Um, where he, Jens Holston, and Blake Harrington battled in some angry mountain with wet weather and an unplanned bivy. (laughs) Sol and I talk about uh, his experience recreating as a rock climber, a snowboarder, and skier, where he's spent years refining his abilities in the pursuit of adventure. We even talked about Sol's youth, where in Sol's youth, where he met a um, powerful leader and teacher father named Charlie Parker. Charlie was Sol's judo teacher, and Sol had seen the unique challenges and hardships that came from being a black man in the inner urban community that he grew up in. 
Um, there's a great article about um, Charlie that I left in the um, show notes of this episode, or you can find it on becominghumanpodcast.com. Um, and that article is incredible. Like Charlie is praised for his efforts as a coach in many sports in his community. And also um, his organization, Charlie's Place, um, which um, has worked to facilitate community transformation by providing opportunities for personal development and community engagement through recreation. Um, I really enjoy the presence of getting to talk with a person who's in love with some form of recreation. Encapsulated in recreation is the opportunity to form some of the deepest bonds with other people and experientially learn meta lessons. There's a ton of interpersonal and introspective knowledge that I and several other of my guests have learned through recreating. After decades of adventure, Souls is several years into fatherhood, and it was a blast to listen to his life experiences. Uh, if you want to check out more about Soul, you can head over to his blog at soulclimbs.blogspot.com. You can find him on Instagram at soulwortkin. And he's also the director of the Leavenworth Mountain Association, which maintains the cleanliness, climbing access, and improves trails um, in the Leavenworth area. And you can find them on Instagram at Leavenworth Mountain Association. And if you'd like to check out Charlie's Place, you could find the links to that in the um, show notes. Or you can go to charliesplace.org. Just wanted to make sure. Oh, no. You can go to K-Zoo Charlie's Place, um, dot com. K zoo charlie's place.com um, and if you'd like to support the show you can go to becoming human podcast.com um, or follow us on instagram at becoming human podcast without any further ado here's soul working Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, and Kalamazoo is a pretty big city, about 150,000, uh, halfway between Detroit and Chicago. And so, you know, compared to the Northwest, this is like a concrete jungle, right? Like it is urban, um, you know, uh, 
it's the Midwest, so it's really, really flat. Uh, it's humid. There's a lot of mosquitoes. Um, there's, I mean, there was gang violence. Um, you know, uh, looking back, I really appreciate growing up in the Midwest. Um, but I was, I was eight years old, and I don't know what brought on this idea. That's also the year I started snowboarding. So I think maybe snowboarding magazines, but I was eight years old and uh, I told myself when I'm old enough, I'm going to move west to the mountains and I'm going to raise my family in a small mountain town. Was there snowboarding uh, access, like easy access to snowboarding in the Midwest then? <laughs> so you, this, this, the resort that I grew up on is called Bittersweet, uh, which is a pretty funny name. And uh, it's actually an industrial landfill. Um, Whoa. So, you know, dump trucks would come in and dump their, you know, their their uh, debris, their refuse. And then eventually when it got high enough, they would put, you know, sand and dirt over it, put some whiffs on it. And uh, oh. I mean, for us in Michigan, like we lived for it. Like we were like, I remember the first year I got a season pass to bittersweet. It was like, okay, well, let's do this. You know, I, I think I was like maybe 12, you know, and it was just uh -huh. like getting the parents to drop us off at bittersweet as much as possible. Whoa. <laughs> Anything so, to like find something to go down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's really flat in Michigan. Um, so so anyway, so early on, it was just, I want to go out West. I want to go out West. Uh, and when I was 18 years old, I headed West. Um, I just packed up my stuff in my car, a little Honda Accord and headed West. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't really have any connections and, uh, Westward bound. And, um, I traveled around, uh, you know, Utah, Colorado, Utah, um, California and I ended up in Hood River, Oregon. What made you go to Hood River? So uh, that was like my only one connection is my cousin who lived in Seattle um, said, you know, I have this, I know this woman in, in Hood River and <laughs> You know, as I was like, I left like right after Thanksgiving. So the road trip was like pretty cold um, and I was camping out the whole time. And, uh, you know, as I was kind of getting road weary after about two months, I that was like my only connection on the West Coast was this random, you know, phone number that uh, my cousin had given me. And he had said, you know, she she rents out rooms. And uh, and so I called this lady up. I said, hey, I'm I'm. Uh, traveling around. I heard you rent rooms, you know, I know, you know, you know, my cousin, Matt, and she said, well, I actually have a room. And so Hood River it was, you know, my goal was to snowboard. Um, and so, um, I got a room from her and I spent that first winter as a lift operator at Mount Hood Meadows. Uh, what was it like to come from like the Midwest and then come over here and see like this huge expanse of mountains and the rugged terrain? Oh, just like mind blown, like so amazing. Like, I mean, everything about that experience every day, I would just be in awe because I mean, that was really cool because I was living down in the Columbia River Gorge, which I had never seen anything so green and so vibrant. And then, you know, 45 minutes later, you know, I'm like looking at like cornices for the first time. 
Wow. Like, you know, like the, I forget the, the really high lift at Mount Hood Meadows, but you know, there's glaciers there and that's the top of Mount Hood. And I mean, it was amazing. It was everything I had dreamed of. It's like a fairy tale landscape almost in like contrast to like the, you know, the flat and the hilly terrain. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, I still, I still am amazed at where I live. You know, I live in Leavenworth, Washington now and I'm still blown away, but occasionally I have to remind myself, you know, I'm like, Oh, wait, wait, look, look at what's around you, you know? And then I'm like, Oh man, this is incredible. You know, it's <laughs> um, it, yeah. You're kind of like set up in an, in an interesting situation there where like, you know, you get like a little taste of, you know, the exciting thrill of like going up and down things that could be steep. Right. And like, your whole entire childhood you get to build that little stoke and then finally just be immersed in it you know it's it's a very interesting relationship because i grew up on the west and like i didn't you know i was like immersed in it more in california so not like in like the rugged terrain you'd find here in the cascades but um yeah it just seems like such a different way to grow up yeah no i feel really fortunate like uh you know, I really appreciate my Midwest upbringing um, for a lot of reasons. Like one, I mean, it was so flat. And so that's what makes, you know, other places so amazing. Um, you know, I've actually been thinking about my childhood a lot. Um, I grew up um, around a lot of black culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, lately I've been like processing my childhood and what that meant to me. And uh, I was competitive. I did competitive judo in my youth um, from age eight to 16. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. I mean, that's definitely like a big part of my life. Um, But my sensei was uh, was a black man. And he was like, you know, I'm just been thinking about him. And he was like one of my earliest mentors. And, um, I mean, he's a guy who I really looked up to and what were some qualities in him that you really admired? Well, his name is Charles Parker and and he's just an incredible human. Um, I actually just, you know, I've been processing, you know, we're in the midst of black lives matter Mm -hmm. and I'm a dad and, uh, you know, I got two young girls and they live in, this very small bubble here in Leavenworth, Washington. And so it's always been important for my wife and I to, uh, you know, expand their consciousness beyond this bubble. Yeah. Um, but so, so the, so I've been thinking about this, I've been processing it as I think all of us are, or a lot of us. And so I Googled, I Googled my sensei's name and, uh, he, he has a new nickname in Kalamazoo. Uh, they call him Mr. Everything. Oh, whoa. And uh, I read an incredible article, like summarizing probably the last decade of his life, um, where he um, he has created a community center called Charlie's Place uh, on the north side of Kalamazoo, which is the lower income, mostly black neighborhood. And uh, it was a really interesting article. It talked about his kids, all of whom were in the judo club together. He, he made all his kids do judo until age 12. That's um, so rad. And then it was, it, it talked about, I mean, they're all really successful people. His daughters have created like there's, they're successful business women and they've created uh, a nonprofit that empowers uh, female black entrepreneurs. Um, oh, that's powerful. You know, his son's an architect. Um, and so, you know, 
Yeah, just an incredible guy. Like he just, they call him Mr. Everything because he gives his heart and soul to the community. Um, you know, he's still a sensei. He still has a dojo. Um, I mean, he was the guy I remember seeing Charlie Parker always smiling, always motivated and, and just like, Hey, what's up guys, let's do this, you know? And then, but at the same time, like, I remember, I remember his, you know, you could see the cross between sensei and dad, as far as his children, you know, there was no messing around in the dojo from his kids, even though they were going to give him, you know, a bit of back talk occasionally. Um, and as, as, you know, as friendly and, and whatnot, as he was, he, he still pushed us, um, pushed us hard. And, uh, when I, when I did judo, we were the most successful judo team in Michigan. Um, you know, we would show up and we would clean house, you know, (laughs) there would be, and we'd go to a tournament with 15 people. We'd come home with 11 first places. Oh, wow. Yeah. Powerful leader. That's wow. Absolutely. And we were also at the same time, you know, I've been thinking about racism a lot and we were, would show up and we would be like, you know, our judo team would be maybe like 50% to like 75%, 50 to 60%, you know, African-American black kids. And that was, that was not the norm. And oh, wow. So we would show up, you know, and people would kind of vibe us like we're some thugs and whatever. Uh-huh. And then, um, you know, I remember, I remember racism against the black athletes from some of the referees and from some of the coaches, and by the end of the day, nobody would really have anything to say because we would just clean house yeah. and represent. It was it was how awesome. Would your, how would your coach handle those situations? Like, were there any like memorable things that, that he'd say, like in, in a moment of like awkwardness or like tension? You know, um, I mean, because I was the, a white athlete, I you know, it didn't happen to me. So I, yeah, I exactly. I don't really remember. Um, I mean, he would just, I mean, he'd be like, all right, we're going to stay positive. That doesn't matter. We're going to get out, get out on the mat and show them what we're made of. You know, I mean, that's, that's the kind of speech you'd get from Charlie Parker. Yeah. Oh, wow. And that's the thing like, you know, in, uh, in martial arts, probably among certain other disciplines, like you have this, like these micro, um, how do you say it? Micro voluntary, playful adversity. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, you put yourself there and you have to walk that line of being like either being like the underdog. You might not make it through it. Some people are going to doubt you. There's just all this external pressure, um, whether it is for you to, to succeed or fail. And then throughout that, you have to be able to walk that line of expressing compassion and also demanding, you know, the best out of yourself. Mm -hmm. And like, I think those situations, like without, without that vehicle there, without that game there, it's rare to have that conversation with other people. Sure. Sure. Especially kids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's been, I've been thinking about Charlie a lot and like what he meant to me and like the influence he had. And, you know, I moved to Washington. Uh, first I lived in Bellingham for about eight years and then here in Leavenworth. And I mean, without a doubt, it is like the whitest place I've ever been. And, uh, you know, I grew up around black culture. I, I, you know, in my neighborhood, um, you know, I had, a handful, you know, I probably had like growing up, like probably 30% of my friends on the block were black. Um, you know, my high school is actually predominantly black. And, uh, I mean, I saw racism towards, towards African-Americans my entire life. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but moving here, uh, I mean, I guess I've just been thinking about it. I have a lot of friends that, that they didn't grow up, you know, they grew up in Bellevue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they grew up, you know, in these, in these different places. And so it's been really cool to watch them, uh, you know, understand or like contemplate what their life experiences and then learn more about the, you know, um, the black American experience, you know? And, uh, I mean, I remember I, uh, some uh, story I was thinking about was, you know, I was really young and I jumped in this van full of older dudes to go to this judo tournament, like 14 hours away in uh, Marquette, Michigan. And it was funny. My parents dropped me off. They looking in there. They're like, okay, it's, it's Saul. I'm like, I don't know, 10 years old. I don't know how old I was really young. And like the next kid, to my age was like 17, you know, a bunch of dudes. And, uh, and we headed North and I remember that Charlie Parker was driving the the van and he got pulled over and you could tell he was nervous, man. Like, you know, black guy getting pulled over by a white state trooper. I remember like hands up on the, you know, dash and the guy came to the, um, window and it was all, yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. You know, um, and I don't, I don't remember, this is so long ago. I don't, I don't, I don't think there was any racism involved, but I remember he was nervous. Yeah. And then I remember, I remember when, uh, when we drove away, another sensei was like, and we had to get pulled over with the black guy driving, you know? <laughs> Cause, Cause I mean, like yeah. I, I saw, I mean, you know, racism was a daily occurrence in the Midwest. Um, you know, I remember the white teachers picking on the black kids, um, you know, I remember in high school, um, if we, if, if I was out with my friends on, you know, Friday night, Saturday night driving around and we were getting pulled over, which occasionally happened. The first thing I would do is look around the car and see if there was a black kid in there. Oh. And more often than not, if there was, we were going to get messed with. We were maybe going to get pulled out of the car. We were going to get searched. Um, that's wild. You know, and then if there was just white kids, it'd be a different experience. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I don't know where we started with that, but. Uh, did, did your did your um, teacher at the time, like, did did he ever did you ever witness him have like any conflict? Um, I don't mean like physical. Right. I mean, like tension and stuff. Did you ever like witness him like talk about those situations or because um, I just noticed like the way that, that he he handles, you know, just sounds like even just a few of the 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 things is, is very interesting or the few of the altercations yeah i mean you know i remember our, our senseis telling us talking to the black athletes and uh and even the white senseis just telling them that you know when you're on the sidelines there's going to be no messing around um when you're out there you know i mean you can get different penalties and you know explaining to them they're going to be looking for penalties for you you know against you and uh, i mean it was out there because you know we you know they experienced it i i did not but as a team we experienced it and they experienced as individuals and they said you just got to be on your best behavior and when it comes down to it you guys have worked hard and you know let's go let's go sweep this tournament and uh it was, it was, uh, I really, you know, I actually j- started judo because I was this very shy. My, my dad got me into it cause I was like this really shy, timid kid. 
Um, you know, I had no muscle on my body. I, like I was a skinny little kid and my dad just wanted me to kind of get a little bit more backbone, you know, couldn't, couldn't quite find the sports that worked for me. Like team sports were definitely not a go. Um, but then in the end, uh, judo and then skateboarding and snowboarding became, uh, became my sports uh, as a youth. What were your relationship with your teammates? Like, did you develop bonds with them? Oh, for sure. We were tight. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I quit at age 16. I had had a couple injuries and I really just wanted to skate and snowboard. Um, but then some of my, some of my teammates went on to compete internationally. Um, and one of my teammates named Chris Snyder, uh, I think he won the Pan American games one year and, uh, now has his own dojo back in Kalamazoo, like, you know, very, uh, impressive judoka. That's rad. I'll follow uh, it all the way through. Yeah, for sure. But we were tight, man. Uh, we were all in together, you know, um, like there's what I've noticed through, through martial arts is perhaps more than anything. Climbing really comes close. Um, and even more than like familial bonds, I wouldn't say like, as a father to his son, but I would say as a child to their parent, right? I've never gotten closer to people than I have through like martial arts and like, and, and like intense is it, it, more in jujitsu and perhaps judo as well. In the situation where it's like, um, you, you get a fully express like the whole martial art, right? And you have to be able to trust like your, your, the other grappler to not to not hurt you and to stop when you when you're finished right um and you build those relationships and you build them with just complete strangers and like any kind of anxiety or like ego that i would wrestle with would completely dissolve like there isn't you know any um saving face or there isn't any you know like trying not to be embarrassed it's just all out there and like like as close as you possibly can get to someone. And like with that, you know, I've gotten close to people who like Presbyterians, Mormons, people who are like, I haven't unfortunately like had the opportunity to, you know, with more minority cultures other than like Hispanic, but like, sure. um, and, and also like some other cultures in South America. Um, cause there's more mainly like farming up here in the Skagit Valley. But with that, like the way that I ingratiated into that, like that culture just of learning through my friends and bringing them into my life, like they be felt like family to me, you know, I'd see sure. them every day for years. And like, I train with them, I teach their kids and our kids would train together. And like, I would, um, they would trust me to train their children, you know? And like, that kind of relationship was, was just so intense. And it was cool because like it dropped all of like all of the bonds. Cause at that place, these disparate cultures and like, um, and interest groups came together, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. those Presbyterians yeah. were really cool. I was surprised she like would do kickboxing, but she had to wear a skirt to her ankles and she could never cut her hair. And yeah. then they had to wear like clothes up to their, to their wrists. And then we have another family and they, they're, they can't really speak. They speak like broken English. So you have to like learn how to communicate with them and you use a lot of body language and coming from like a small insular city, you know, like Northern Idaho. Um, I was so cool to be a part of that. Like, and I, and I love that cause you know, my son and I learned so much about at least just a, a few different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I was very close to my, to my fellow judokas. 
Um, and I really, I feel like the only thing I can compare kind of that bond with is, you know, uh, with my climbing partners now, um, who, you know, are just like family, you know, a number of them. Absolutely. What do you think that, what do you think brings that out in those situations? Like specifically with climbing? Oh, when you're just, you know, I mean, you're all in and you together are just like pushing the limits of your human potential, you know? And I think it's, uh, in experiencing kind of that, that magic together, uh, you know, you just don't get that in, in everyday life. Um, or at least, you know, I don't. What about, what about climbing, um, lends itself to creating deep and meaningful bonds with other people? You know, I think it's just kind of the act of, uh, you know, being together and pushing yourself really hard. Um, and going through kind of that, that magical, um, experience of like pushing your, your potential, you know, as a climber and as a human and, uh, you know, I mean, just the unknown and the psych and the bond, um, you know, I mean, and in the end, like, I think maybe one of the ways it's, it's similar to martial arts is that, uh, you know, climbing is a dangerous sport and, you know, uh, there, there's going to be times where you are in danger and you pull it out, pull it off. Um, and, uh, you know, just experiencing that together. I mean, you know, there's routes you do and you're, you're not the same person afterwards, you know, um, you know, you're changed as a person, you're changed as a, as a partnership. It's like the, that, that perceived, uh, the perceived risk, right? Like depending on the level of perceived risk, it, it really changes the the psychology, just the whole experience of it. You know, it's even the difference between what I've been hearing from um, learning about people paragliding uh-huh. um, and flying a plane. Like one of them, you you learn almost how like the whole weather systems and you know the pressure and thermals and the clouds are moving and, and how energy is built up um, in the sky and like. It's the, the perceived risk is super high and all of it is in your own control. And because of that, it just creates this like magical experience. Whereas when you're in the plane, even if you are aware of the risk of being in a plane, once that risk goes away and even in that process, it's like still kind of, you know, out there. It's not it's not the same magic that you get from that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I actually, I have a lot of friends that are getting way into paragliding, um, speed flying and whatnot. And, uh, I, I personally am not interested at all. Um, yeah. I've become actually pretty risk averse, uh, as the years have gone on. Um, what do you think that is parenting? Definitely for sure. And like, I, I also like, I, I feel like, um, the more experience you get, the less, uh, you are able to pretend that things are safe, at least me personally. Um, you know, I think it's really easy to desensitize yourself to dangerous sports, um, and kind of build up kind of a false, uh, false idea about, you know, the dangers of something. It could be a poor feedback loop in um, certain sports, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, I quit skiing and snowboarding. I did it for years, you know, I think 29 years, almost 30 years. Um, 
and it was like all in like his first snow until kind of like late spring i would ski as much powder as possible and uh and snowboard and push 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 uh the envelope as much as i could on steep gnarly lines and i even did that into having children um and I skied with a lot of really uh, educated folks, you know, folks that would teach like the level one, two and three uh, avalanche awareness courses. And, um, you know, since I moved to Washington, I I've had either friends or acquaintances uh, like seven or eight folks die in avalanches. Um, you know, Leavenworth has has gotten hit pretty hard. Um, you know, in the last 10, 11 years with a lot of avalanche deaths and, uh, you know, for years, I mean, even into having children, I'd be like, Oh, but I know the snow conditions and I know, you know, I'll go through the Abbey stuff with my partners. And, uh, I mean, in reality I had to just, I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm always continually asking myself, you know, challenging, challenging my beliefs on things personally, you know, my inner dialogue. And, uh, eventually I kind of realized that, you know, folks that really know a lot about snow science, mm-hmm. when it they reach a point where they the epiphany is that the more you know, the real you realize that it's just wildly unpredictable, mm-hmm. and and you can't know everything. You can't account for all the variables. Um, so yeah, like five years ago, four years ago or something, I just cold turkey quit skiing period. And that was, you know, probably the year before I had skied like 40 days. And, uh, I think I've skied twice in the last like four or five years. Wow. So is that desire, like the thing that you got out of it still there and are you fulfilling it in other ways or did, is that kind of fizzed out? That's a good question. Cause it was like multifactorial, right? Like it, it was, you know, a lot of things. Um, I mean, I had been doing it so long that I, I mean, I guess the safe way would be like, okay, I'm only going to ski in the resort and I'm not going to go into the side country. And for me, that just wasn't entertaining at, you know, anymore. Um, I mean, I wanted to ski the steepest, gnarliest stuff I could find, you know, period. And, and you're like expertise on it. Like what, what does that look like on like a one to 10 scale as a, as a skier, a snowboarder? Oh, you know, I mean, like were you shredding like really hard shit? Like I was, yeah. I mean, I was trying to, I was still, I was a Washington skier. And so probably for me, like the next level was to go to Alaska. Um, but yeah, like steep couloirs jumping off cliffs. Um, you know, I mean, there's a number of, like I, I when I lived in Bellingham, that's when like, I really learned how to, how to ride hard uh, up in Mount Baker. Cause it's, yeah. um, you know, I rode there for eight years and it was incredible, had a huge impact, um, you know, on my riding because it's, it's steep and it's, it's a little big mountain skiing up there, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, learned how to manage slough. Um, and then I kind of took those skills to Stevens pass and Stevens pass is not as steep, not nearly as steep and it's very treed. And so at Stevens, you know, quite quickly, I was, you know, seeking out the hardest train I could find. Um, you know, which would be like the rooster comb, um, or a cowboy, uh, ski line called AK 47. So yeah, you know, I don't know. I'd give myself a seven or eight, mm-hmm. um, you know, but multifactorial in that I felt like the only way for me to be safe was to totally give it up. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, it's very expensive. 
And I had, I had two children at the time. I think baby number two had just come, was maybe a year old. And, um, you know, I just, I remember like, you know, I'd be up at like five 30 in the morning and I'd be like kind of, you know, preparing lunches or breakfast, like doing whatever I could in the morning to like help my wife out. Cause I was going to get to go skiing. Mm-hmm. And then I'd do as much as I could and I'd leave at like seven in the morning and then I'd get home at like somewhere between noon and three and just being really exhausted for the second half of the day and just being like, like trying to push hard to be a good dad, but just being tired and being like, I just felt imbalanced, you know? Yeah. Um, and then really like I was getting older, I'm, I'm almost 42. I'll be 42 in September. And I really wanted, like, I decided like where I really want to push myself is in my rock climbing. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's hard to balance slaying powder all winter, um, in the mountains with climbing, like, you know, you come, you come into climbing season in the spring, pretty weak and not, you know, at some um, point they're competing. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I struggle with that so much. (laughs) Yeah. So, but for me, like, I mean, the ultimate, like the real reason is like this, this fear of, uh, you know, I had a couple slides kind of the last couple of years I was riding, um, you know, just a couple avalanches and Mm -hmm. those things happen and I didn't get caught in any of them. And I kind of knew when it was going to happen. Um, but the thought of suffocating in an avalanche and thinking about my family, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't let that ever be a reality. So I dropped it, man. And my poor ski partners, cause I was, a, I was a good partner, man. I was dialed in. I always had an agenda, you know, and yeah. uh, <laughs> those guys, man, I, you know, there's still, some of them are my climbing partners and whatnot. And, uh, you know, they give me a hard time often. Oh, I bet. Trying to lure you in. <laughs> Come on, man. Let's ski. Let's go do some lines. It's yeah. good. It's good. And I'm like, man, and I, I feel bad cause I just dropped them. You know, I didn't drop them as friends, but yeah, as partner, I was like, sorry, dude. I like, I don't know if I'll ever ski again. Wow. What dude? (laughs) Especially like for people out there who are not familiar with it with partners, because like some people you'll you'll develop a relationship with them over time and you know you'll develop like big goals, right? That are like season long or even multiple multiple seasons long. Mm -hmm, For sure. And it's it's an amazing like I look back really fondly at all those ski missions with those guys because we just I mean there were some days uh, I remember a, a day in particular with my friend uh, Joey Treffs. Um, I mean we skied like six lines we skied like a season's worth of killer backcountry lines in a single day, <laughs> and uh, you know he's probably the one that's that's most hurt. But uh, <laughs> still love you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Uh, wow. Cause I've had several, um, you know, situations with ultra running and, and like climbing and now I'm getting kind of into skiing, um, where like, I, ha- I like all of these things, but I have to do like, I have to mitigate how I spend my time. Cause like some things are more conducive to being a father and other things kind of aren't, you know, yeah. or at least make it more challenging or even concern me because like, you know, no one's, I want to be there for my son. And and that's really important. That's why like, I, I stopped doing um, kickboxing uh, or competing in kickboxing because like when you're doing amateur matches, a lot of them are knockout or draw. And 
like I can't really afford, nor do I want to, you know, be getting knocked out is the only person who's going to care for my son. And like, I love jujitsu and jujitsu is something that you can easily share. And it's more of a, a familial thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had to think about that a lot with like, with climbing, like cragging's great, but doing like Alpine stuff. Well, that's my favorite. Like, it's just interesting. Cause you know, being a parent, it really makes you think about things differently. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think you're naive if you're a parent and you're not considering, you know, the, you know, objective dangers and risks of those sports. Right. Um, yeah. You know, I've, uh, I mean, just the general theme as far as climbers and skiers, um, you know, tend to die more often on snow than rock. So I really don't do much snow. Like, uh, it's interesting. Uh, you know, you kind of think about easy climbing, like, Oh, easy, easy mountaineering, you know, easy glacier hiking and, uh, you know, Oh, uh, scrambling. Um, and I actually think both of those things are actually a lot more dangerous than like hard rock climbing in the mountains. Um, because you're on unprotectable terrain. Um, you know, so I, I've yeah. even talked to like Brian Bordeaux and that was, you know, like looking at, uh, or how would I say this dealing with the terror of rock climbing? Cause I still struggle with that every time the beginning of the season rolls around is like, Oh, exposure. Wonderful. Uh, yeah. but then this, the stoke starts building, uh, and I'd fantasize about, you know, like, um, falling on gear and, and hitting a ledge. Cause like on, you know, easier stuff, it's not really all vertical. Right. And I was talking to Brian. He's like, yeah, five, like five eleven, five twelve. It's a wonderful grade. It's like one of the safest grades, more than five twelve, because usually when you fall, like not everything's usual, but more often than not, there's a lot less objective hazards. For sure. No, I totally agree. Um, so just get really strong and start climbing five twelves and it'll be a lot safer. <laughs> <laughs> the stoke will keep burning but yeah <laughs> my body will follow it's funny because i've been you know i do a lot of i do some climbing coaching very selectively and i do some mentoring and i have to remind myself when i'm telling you know fledging 5 10 10 plus leaders like oh you need to take a lot of falls mm-hmm. and you know get really comfortable taking whippers and climbing above your gear and <laughs> You know, I got to remember that I have uh, a different feel for that and I'm on different terrain and, and that five, nine, five, ten terrain is slabbier and can be more dangerous, more injurious. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so how many years have you been rock climbing in the Cascades? So we'll go back to bouncing her. So, yeah, so this is, this is the, the early saw climbing story. Um, so I went to hood river. And I was a ski bum. And then that summer, a good friend of mine uh, from Michigan came out, Joe Riley. And we uh, we basically got dropped off at the top of Olympic National Park. Um, at this point, I had packed everything I owned back in my Honda and I had parked it at my friend's parents' house. And then that friend dropped us off up in uh, Olympic National Park. And we were going to do a summer of backpacking. Um I mean, I think originally we were going to do like the whole West Coast. Wow. I don't know. We we didn't know what we were doing, man. I mean, <laughs> I had I had been, you know, in the West for like four months. And, uh, you know, it's we 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 he's still a really one of my closest friends. And we talk often um, and we laugh about uh, ourselves then. Like I remember like 
we kept sending stuff back to his parents in Michigan mm-hmm. from our backpacks. Like, like the weather radio went first. The weather radio? <laughs> yeah, we had a weather radio, you know, and I'm pretty sure like his mom had given him that, like, you know, oh, yeah. Michigan, like take the weather radio. We kept sending stuff back. Like, uh, we had, he had a backpacker guitar and a drum cause he's a native American and drumming was really important to him. Oh, that's cool. And, uh, like the drum went and like a bunch of pots and pans oh, went back. Yeah. <laughs> The drum was out. We realized he could, he could, he could still do his chanting, his yeah. singing without the drum and maybe with the pot, you know, the, the one pot we did keep, but, uh, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, but so we, we did the whole Olympic coast trail about 70 miles. It was awesome. Um, you know, we had a lot of trials on that one. Lots of blisters. Our packs were heavy. That's when we started sending stuff back. Um, we eventually hitchhiked down the West coast to Northern California. We got on the Pacific crest trail and then we hiked the whole state of Oregon on the Pacific crest trail, about 500 miles back to uh, my car um, near hood river. And you know, that took, I think three months, you know, quite a while. Wow. Um, It's a long time ago. So I don't remember. Um, And then we drove back to Michigan and so then like the next year, uh, I moved with another close Michigan friend, uh, my friend Giannis, we moved to Colorado and it was a bit similar, like a ski bum at Beaver Creek. Uh, this time I realized that you get a night job. Uh, I got a night, I was a night cook at an Italian restaurant <laughs> and, uh, and so that's when it's all, that's where it's about. Cause then you can ski all day, but uh, I did that in the winter and then, um, that summer, my friend John and I hiked the state of Colorado on the Continental Divide Trail. So, oh. so it was like, you know, skiing in the winter, backpacking in the summer. When you uh, did that first long trip with your pals, were you just like, what, what was that leading up to it? Was it, were you all stoked? And then what was it like at the end? Was it like, were you completely enamored by the experience? Because that's kind of wild and like out there once you do those multi-day backpacking trips, it's yeah it's cool man it was great uh that was just trial upon trial because we didn't know we didn't know what we were doing man i mean we were like just figuring it out as we went whether it was i remember i had to get a tick uh, we had to go to emergency room in ashland oregon had to get a tick uh pulled out of my uh shoulder blade oh um I remember my buddy Joe, we ended up in the hospital uh, in an ER, a couple of ER trips, uh, <laughs> an ER, I guess that was in Crescent City. Yeah, that was in Crescent City, um, California. Uh, he he had like bought these used hiking boots uh-huh. back in Ann Arbor where he was going to school and they didn't quite fit. And so he stretched them out a little bit and, you know, you should never do something like that. So (laughs) you got like intense foot pain and we went to the ER and then, uh, I mean, that was pretty funny. The ER nurse there like looked at us and like Joe told her our story and then she took us home with her after her shift. She said, you guys hang (laughs) out here. I'll be done in an hour. She took us home and like fed us so much food and put us up. And she had these like, 18 year old daughter and her best friend were there. Like it was a great experience, you know? And that's like, that's the beauty of that type of thing is, uh, you know, you're just long for the ride. Um, 
but so it was a lot of trials um and we were learning how to to live in the mountains and uh that year in particular there was it was 180 percent of snowfall uh, average of snowfall in oregon cascades and so there was tons of snow and um you know i still i still use these backpacking skills in the mountains to this day like i can figure out without seeing the trail where the trail goes just by on that trip kind of learning where they would make trails and the signs above the snow that could point to maybe where the trail is <laughs> um but by the end of that but it was the last day of that trail we connected with um these pretty amazing through hikers um like this one guy I don't remember his name. He had a trail name. I don't remember it, but he went on to be, become the first person to do, um, is it the triple crown? Um, yeah, yeah. he did the, he was first one to do the triple crown in a season. Whoa. But also it was really cool to connect with them that last day because, uh, my friend Joe and I, and then, he himself and another guy, we were the first four people to make it through Oregon that season. Wow. Because of all the snow. And yeah. so 10 or 12 folks ahead of us had bailed because it was too much. Mm -hmm. um, so we had persevered. And uh, oh, you know, by the end of that, you know, we were crushing 20 mile days. Um, our packs were streamlined. We were dialed in. Um, you know, it was it was awesome. Uh, you know, a great uh, evolution. Mm -hmm. um but so then i did it in, in colorado and uh that was an amazing trail the continental divide trail i highly recommend it it's it's wild it's high there's uh thunderstorms and lightning every day oh yeah <laughs> um you know uh it's super scenic um and we had a blast our packs were super light uh i think 13 pounds uh 13 pound pack uh without food water and fuel that's not bad. You really streamlined it. So, yeah, we were dialed in. Um, so then I went back to Michigan for a year. Wait, was it as, because you were dialed in, did you have as much fun, like the, the highs and the lows on this one compared to the last one? Um, because when people don't do backpacking, sometimes they're like, God, that like, that sounds miserable, but like some of it's like, it's a type two fun, right? <laughs> yeah, no, we did. Uh, we had a blast, man. I mean, you know, I think that's another experience where me and my friend John became so tight and in tune with each other. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, also it's like a interesting, I mean, you know, this is like 18 and 19 years old. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, so really character building, right. To like push yourself like that and to be immersed in nature like that, you know, real connection to the, to the wild. Um, I remember towards the end of that trip, we did a 35 mile day. Oh, um, damn. And so, um, you know, we had learned at that point, you don't wear hiking boots, you know, you wear running shoes and we were light and just honed. And so, you know, and also the trail becomes an experience with the people you meet. Um, mm -hmm. and so I think as it became less of a task, um, less arduous, we were really able to connect with our fellow hikers uh, and then with, with people in the communities where we did our, you know, re refuels and whatnot. You kind of like getting that sometimes you can get in that spot where you're anticipating like the end and the satisfaction of the end that you get you kind of forget like all of that fun stuff is you know in those little moments that you share with people is that kind of what you're alluding to yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure um it's funny now uh 
because <laughs> I really don't like hiking. <laughs> <laughs> like Tell if there's not it. if there's not like a rack and a rope in my bag and we're gonna go do some awesome objective, like my poor wife, she's like, Let's go hiking. I'm like, Oh, hiking. Oh, Oh, but I'm actually, I'm starting to backpack with my children and that's amazing. Super cool. What um, don't you like about it? Like what's, <laughs> what happened? It's just kind of got boring, man. I don't know. You know, do you like to trail like, run. I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I'm, this, I, I'm in the same boat. I found out like all these backpacking things when I would go out and do them. I'm like, wow, this sucks. Like a good percentage of the time. And, and then also I didn't have like great, you know, gear. Um, so waking up and it's really cold outside it's like ugh. but when you run like you don't really need anything like your body temperatures it, it stays pretty high even if it's rainy you stay pretty dry like you know yeah. you have all the gear on you and you don't have to like sleep uncomfortably it's you don't have a heavy pack on you or anything man it's liberating yeah and maybe it's because i know that that like slowly plotting through it with a heavy pack or like <laughs> just slowly walking on a day hike. I don't know, man. It doesn't do, I mean, really what it is, is it's climbing. Cause if I'm going to hike to the mountains, yeah, I want to, but then get to climb at the end. Like that's what it's all about. Like I love those. <laughs> it's funny. I hate hiking, but I don't mind approaches at all. I find it, you know, uh, very, uh, I mean, a great like, meditative time, you know, even um, when they're heinous approaches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I've gotten really good at bushwhacking. Uh, actually, I feel like I've probably lost some of those skills the last few years. Um, but I mean, no, I mean, heinous approaches are heinous, right? Like, you know, you can definitely see God on some of that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, but anyway, so uh, so I then after my time in Colorado, I went back to Michigan and I spent about a full year in Michigan. Oh, wow. um, and basically I was, I was working like two or three jobs at once, like saving all the money I could. And it was like back West, I'm going West. Um, and that is when I moved, uh, with three of the friends to Bellingham, Washington. What brought you to Bellingham that time? Uh, that I was like, okay, I've been playing around a bit. Uh, uh I think I want to go to college. Uh, I want to go to school, but I really, what I want to do is snowboard. And so, you know, I saw that, uh, Bellingham and Western Washington university had a community college. And then, um, it was actually the year after the, the huge, the record year at Mount Baker. <laughs> so, you know, I was one of those Midwesterners that came and, you know, blew up the Mount Baker scene. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so that, yeah, we moved to Bellingham. So for snowboarding and skiing, Bellingham must have been a really good spot. It was awesome, man. Yeah. You know, of all that, like I did learn through those other two, uh, you know, mountain towns that I had lived in that uh, like resort resort town living was was not my thing. You know, um, just different dynamics there. And uh, I mean, well, Bellingham. Was it like social or economic dynamics? I mean, you got to think I'm like an 18, 19 year old kid. And uh, I mean, Hood River was cool. Um, but like living in Colorado in a ski town, you know, you, you know, I was, I wanted to meet girls and yeah. uh, I would go to a party <laughs> and uh, I'd go to a party and there'd be like 30, 30 guys and like two girls or three girls. And <laughs> And then that creates this whole kind of like male ego, like, you know, sausage posturing and like, yeah. and I was like, I was just like, I was not feeling it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
but so Bellingham was amazing. It's still, it's an incredible place. And I, I really, uh, I missed so much about Bellingham. Um, but, uh, my first job in Bellingham, um, was at Boundary Bay Brewery and I was a cook there and it was just such a cool place to work. Uh, you know, it actually became my family there, all my friends and my, my bosses and whatnot. Uh, but I had a coworker, his name is Amon and he took me a hippie, uh, barefoot bouldering out at Larrabee state park. (laughs) And, uh, because we didn't have climbing shoes and he said, Oh, you just go barefoot. You know, you, you grip the rock. And, uh, my first project, I remember, uh, super clear was the pink wall traverse. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, up on the railroad tracks and I was, I was hooked, man, from day one. Like, really, it was just, uh, I, I've never felt, I've never had a, you know, a sport or a hobby call to me like climbing did, you know, from day one. Oh, uh, that uh, one, that was it right there in it more so than, than skiing and snowboarding. Huh? Yeah. Yep. Uh, definitely. I mean, here I am, I'm still climbing. Yeah. Um, but yep, it, it just pulled me in. Um, I, I think I really like just the combination of physical challenge and mental challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, you know, uh, I, I did not start with a mentor, you know, I basically taught myself how to rock climb, um, me and my roommates, you know, I remember, you know, shortly thereafter we bought climbing shoes and we started bouldering with shoes and we never bouldered with pads, which was funny. <laughs> what? <laughs> this is like year 2000 and like I yeah you didn't even see many pads out of the boulders back then did you did you have any thought of like falling like did you get any you know relatively high distance off the ground like no high ball but yeah I mean that we were kind of limited I guess we did eventually meet friends that had like one pad um but kind of the nice thing about Larrabee is that, uh, you know, it's a lot of sandy landings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that helped. Um, we got shoes and then we got a rope and some webbing and, you know, we became top ropers. (laughs) Um, and we, you know, basically I, I just started buying like, uh, the John Long books, you know, how to rock climb Mm -hmm. and climbing anchors and freedom of the Hills. And I would just religiously read them and and go out and and teach myself um and you know a part of the a major part of this story for me is i went through a really severe depression in my early 20s and uh living in bellingham and i i think like i think most of it is just like you go through these developmental stages in your life and i think a lot of people struggle in their in their mid-20s um with who they want to become yeah. Um, what they're going to be. Um, but also like I, I still had this kind of shyness and social awkwardness from my youth and, um, you know, I would make friends, but I would have a hard time talking to girls all the time or I don't know, you know, we like pretty insecure, like pretty a lot insecure. Of rolling yeah. in the background, a lot of like, a lot of like negative self-talk in my head. Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people go through this. Um, for me, my experience is I got really depressed and I would say there was a brief period where I was suicidal, um, just cause I was so deeply depressed. And at that time, the only thing that could get me out of my own head was, was climbing. And so it became my escape. Um, and, you know, eventually with climbing, 
it, uh, you know, I, I was trying to figure out how to get out of this funk and being like, okay, you go climbing and you feel good. And then like, as soon as you get home, you start to get depressed. And so I started kind of learning like the kind of like negative cascade of thoughts I was having mm-hmm. and how that was hitting. And I remember I was, I was going to college and I checked, uh, I checked out a book from the library on cognitive behavioral therapy for depression. And I started doing those, those skills on my own. And, uh, and I eventually counseled myself out of it. Um, wow. So you said you taught yourself, like you're beginning to teach yourself climbing. Is this like, uh, this like self learning tendency? Uh, is that something that you were doing before or that just a blossom out of, that time in your life. Yeah, no, I think it's just, I just perhaps being there and not having necessarily the community or the resources I had to like go figure it out myself. Um, so, you know, so climbing for me was a vehicle to, uh, to figure out, you know, who I was and, uh, to get out of this depressive funk and, uh, and it worked and I really haven't had a major depressive episode since then. I'm now 42 and, uh, so, I mean, it was, it was powerful. And, uh, I mean, I feel like personally, like, I feel like climbing saved my life. What were some like key, um, key switches, if you will, that made the biggest difference in either what you learned from the book or like your perspective on life or your relationship with climbing? Do you know what um, I mean? you know, I mean, I, I think for me, it was first it was recognizing like like being aware of when my negative thoughts would cascade, uh, where my thoughts would cascade into a negative state. And then uh, and then realizing that there was no reason to feel negative about those thoughts. Um, and then that kind of moved into the fact that like I couldn't just escape my troubles through climbing. Mm-hmm. I had to attack them head on. Mm. And, um, so, I mean, for me, it was like figuring out who I was. And so, um, you know, and it was starting to challenge myself like, okay, I'm going to go talk to any girl I see at college. Uh, you know, I'm going to get a plan for finishing school. And I think I want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's, it was not like it didn't happen overnight. It was probably a one to two year process, but, uh, it's, it's just but, interesting. Cause like, you know, it's such a personal journey developing, um, whatever is the antithesis to the thing you struggle with. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, I've had that we're walking into jujitsu and like, I'm constantly in my head, like, sorry, sorry. Or, Oh, I can't, you know, they're going to be able to do this better than me. I'll just, or like, ah, maybe I should just kind of give in a little here. They need to wait, like just all these things. And you know, what cause for alarm is these, um, being a play. And, you know, doing whether it's running or martial arts, each of these things have like presented me this like psychosomatic kind of obstacles um, to, to maneuver. And for me, it's like, you know, I'm in that point where I'm trying to take all of that chaos. I mean, I think everyone is always right. But like 
sure. a lot of that chaos and being in my mid twenties and, and trying to figure out the things that I, I like and what I care about and like creating more order on that. And just looking at yourself, like several years into identifying the things that you cared about and also whether it's your profession or your passion, um, in developing your self-worth from there. Like, you know, you've yeah. come a long way. That was a long time ago, man. And it seems like you haven't like, um, faltered in so far that you downward spiraled. It seems like you're pretty successful relative to doing the things that you want to do. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the like powerful things about climbing is, uh, you know, I mean, I, it's just what it can, what it can, you know, through those challenges, you become a strong person, you become confident. Um, you know, you stand on the summit of some peak that you just climbed a hard route on, like what's going to stop you now. Right. Like bring it on, let's do this, you know? And like, you know, in the, in the pain cave, you know, I, I mean, so for me, like it was like rock climbing slash I started, you know, ticking classics in the cascades. So it was like, you know, climbing on snow, like, you know, the North face of Mount Shuckson and, uh, you know, the North Ridge of Mount Baker and, you know, the West Ridge of, you know, uh, forbidden and, you know, like being in like kind of that pain cave where you're like slogging up some steep snow face and you like want to puke and your head is, you know, you have a headache and you're tired and you can't do another step, like pushing yourself to do that next step. Mm-hmm. And then seeing the summit, I mean, that's a powerful experience. Um, you know, you're going to be a changed person and uh, you're going to be, you're going to be more powerful as a human. And so, you know, uh, climbing, uh, we found each other at the right time. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just, I feel really fortunate. So, wow. yeah. And, uh, at that time, did you already know what you're going to, like when you were that formidable period, um, when you worked through you to that depression, um, did you know what you're going to do professionally or is that? No, strange? that was kind of a long journey. Um, you know, so, uh, I'm a, I'm a registered nurse, uh, acute care RN. I work in Wenatchee at central Washington hospital and, uh, I work on a progressive care unit, which is a step down unit from the ICU. So pretty sick folks, but not like, uh, unstable ICU sick, but you know, complicated. Um, and you know, kind of the focus is, uh, cardio, cardio issues and then neurologic issues. Um, but no, I didn't become, uh, I became a nurse at 35. No, no, no. 32. Um, so no, actually I mean, I, I know there's value in just getting college educated, but I kind of put like all the schooling I did in, um, Bellingham was kind of a wash. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I say that I, you know, figured out, you know, I made a plan and started going to school. Well, in the end, I kind of just copped out and got a business finance degree because mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, Oh, it's always something you could fall back on. And, uh, you know, pretty easy degree to get. Um, but it was funny. Uh, my last quarter in, in college, I had this internship at a financial planning office. And I was <laughs> like, I remember, you know, I liked the guys I was working with, you know, they were like inspiring professionals. <laughs> 
but I remember being like, oh yeah, I was, you know, I went snowboarding, you know, yesterday at Baker it was awesome. It was powder day. It's great. And, uh, these guys are, they're not much older than I was, you know, they're under 30 and they're like, oh, like they get like this thousand yard stare. And they're oh, like, no. Yeah, man. I used to snowboard. Oh, <laughs> it was, it was awesome. <laughs> but now I just, I work too much, you know, and <laughs> yeah. These guys working like 50 to 60 hours a week. Um, oh. I was like, so it was like, I was like, cool. I'm about to finish school. What the hell was I thinking? I do not want to be a financial planner. <laughs> but so then, uh, you know, my wife, uh, you know, she was a big part also of, of me being able to overcome that depression. Um, you know, oh, you guys met during that period. Yeah, we did. We did. As I was, uh, as I was starting to figure it out, um, we met, you know, probably, yeah, probably 60, 70% of my way through that, through that journey of depression. I met my wife. She's an amazing woman. One of the most, uh, yeah, strongest, powerful women I, I know. Um, but we, you know, we met, we got married. She's a climber. Uh, we climbed some hard routes together. Um, we moved to Leavenworth, and she had, she had went to school. We had went to school at the same time. She got her master's in education and she came here and became a teacher and she would come home from work and be like, man, this is her first year teaching. She's like, I had the best day. And she would just tell me these experiences she's had with these high school students mm-hmm. and just, you know, she's trying to inspire them to be, you know, well-rounded humans and, just coming home, like she was just knowing that she's working, you know, doing her best to make the world a better place <laughs> and just being really inspired by her work. And oh. it was at that point I was like, OK, I need to find a career where I help people. <laughs> and, um, you know, can be of some type of service. You know, I just I realized I couldn't just work a job. I had to find a career that I had some passion about. Mm-hmm. Um. And so at the same time, we had this hot tub. She's like, if I'm going to, if I'm going to be a teacher and not just climb all year, cause she wasn't expecting to get a job right off the bat. Yeah. But she did. And she had to take it. And she's like, if I'm going to be a teacher all year, I'm getting a hot tub. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So we got a hot tub. We put it in our, in our rental. We had this amazing rental right on the river, uh, of high school Creek, uh, up the high school road on the Wenatchee river. And, uh, she's, so we're sitting in the hot tub and she's like, I was telling her, I was like, yeah, you know, I, I know I need a different career, but I'm thinking I'm just, I want to spend a couple of years just climbing, you know, <laughs> just like working, you know, being a waiter and climbing. And she's like, uh, hmm, well, here's the deal. <laughs> either, either you go back to school and do that schooling now, or I want babies. <laughs> and she threw, she threw down the ultimatum. And, uh, and so then I, I, you know, and it was, it was true. You know, we were in our early thirties. It was time to figure this stuff out. Yep. So, uh, you know, originally I thought, I, I thought maybe I want to be a firefighter. They seem to have a lot of freedom and a meaningful job. And so I went and got my EMT locally in Wenatchee and there was a lot of firefighters in that class, but there was also a few nurses who were like going on to be white nurses. And for a few different reasons, I realized that versus like, I mean, it's pretty hard to get a fire gig. Um, 
but these nurses were awesome. They were badass. And I was like, man, I want to, I'm so I, that's just turned me towards nursing and, uh, was able to go to school in Wenatchee and become a nurse. And uh, I've been a nurse for eight years now. That's cool. And so interesting. Cause like you, you have this, this passion, but you're in it to figure out how, how to make it, your lifestyle work for that passion. But that's that point of service is really important to you, man. That, that's such a cool approach to it. Cause it's not like, you know, like what's the, what's the thing that, that I'm just like, that gives me the most stoke. Cause you already got that in terms of your, your like hobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you look at how can you help your own community? And it kind of reminds me of like, um, at least in terms of like, in terms of leadership and the impact on the, his community that he had, your, your judo teacher, right? Sure. And like, just looking at how can I give back? And that that's rad, man. I feel super fortunate. I mean, it was pretty late that I stumbled upon nursing. Um, and, you know, it's funny, you know, I most nurses, they could tell a non-nurse their day of work and they're like, what? the hell that is a crazy job uh, but i love it man it's a great job um you know you get to help people kind of on possibly the worst day of their lives and make them feel good and uh you know it's a good challenge uh, it is a physical challenge um you know long 12 13 hour shifts um with possibly not many breaks so it's like a physical challenge and it's a mental challenge um and, uh, you know, there's a lot of intellect at the same time. There's a lot of like, uh, organization and system work, uh, you know, economy, emotion, efficiency. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just, it's a great job. I feel really fortunate. I kind of stumbled upon it. You know, this is not like, you know, this is like, I, I need a job, but so I don't have to have babies right now. And, yeah. Uh, nursing, you know, and it, it worked out really well. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, yeah. And that's the part that's so interesting is like, you know, stumbling upon it and your priorities. Cause like you can look at, there's like, I almost would see as like a, um, what is it a very a and B right. Where like in terms of lifestyle, a, you know, where you get the job, um, and you figure out a way to fill your free time with whatever hobbies. And you're kind of like the business people you were talking about where it's like, Oh, I work so many hours. That sounds awesome. So it's like, push that away, deprioritize all that fun, passionate things that really makes you feel like you're coming alive to pursue this like profession. And then, you know, like that B track where it's like, somehow you're like, no, I'm not a weekend warrior. This thing is, is my favorite, you know, climbing or running or whatever. I'm going to create this unconventional lifestyle so that I could do this thing all the time. And then you're like, nope, see, like just right in the middle. You know what I mean? Where you, you love this thing. I don't see you like giving up on it or pushing away climbing. I don't know what your work-life balance is like, but I see you just like, you know, look, I got to make money and I got to also probably should help my community. And you roll that into something as you're like, is almost your, your self-imposed purpose. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. What's, I think, mm-hmm. go ahead. Oh, is this, uh, you go ahead. You're fine. I was going to say, I think, I think service is important. Um, you know, you got to give back. Um, I mean, I think you can, you can do service just, you know, based on having a family or giving back in other ways. Uh, but you know, I also work for a nonprofit in town and that's really fulfilling. Um, the Leavenworth Mountain Association. And, uh, you know, those, those things are important. Um, 
you know, both between, between my job, which is service-based, but I get paid for my job. I also think it's important to volunteer your time. If you live a privileged enough lifestyle to be able to, um, if you have enough to give, like not just for yourself and for your family, but for others, like that's like, that's almost like what our system, um, at least in its origin is like predicated upon is the individual responsibility to their own community, you know? Yeah, sure. And that's the thing that um, I've kind of gone back and forth with because I will teach children who are emotionally and behaviorally delayed. And like as I'm moving out of that um, role to take up graphic design so that I can have more working sounds harsh, but so I can have more like working capital, more time flexibility. I look back at that and I'm not meaning to be like braggadocious, but the kind of skills that I brought to the table from like a martial arts background and an outdoor recreation background, um, were, were very much needed even as like a male. Cause there's not a lot of males in these situations and these children are particularly violent and most of them are male. Um, but like the people who were in those situations without much of a background in you know, in those at- intense activities, um, you'd see that there's a lot left, like, there wasn't many role models in that sense, right? Like people would get out of work and then they go home and they'd have a lot of struggles in their own life and not had like this, like passion, like yourself, right? Like all these like cool stories and thing that overarching, like thing that you're pursuing. Right. Um, and so being in there, I noticed how like a lot of the environment would change and whether we were starting to do like uh, running races and stuff um, or we're bringing like just just different kinds of things into that environment, different perspectives. And I brought some of my um, community members into that school because um, I noticed that like my patience and tolerance for like aggression was a lot higher um, and I was able to remain calm. And I didn't think I was special. I just thought that I practiced this for fun. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And bringing them in, it like completely changed at least like some of the environment. And as I leave that, because like it's a less than ideal working situation, not because of the kids, but the structure of the institution, which sure. kind of often is in a little sense from what I hear. Yeah. Um, I don't feel like I'm like, well, that's just, you know, I got to I have these goals over here. I, I got to walk away from that because I'm living in the same town and that's still there. And if I do have like abilities and ideas, you know, like um, not implementing them is not doing anything is an, is an action in and of itself, you know, like just walking away and saying, no, oh, they'll take care of themselves. There'll be people out there who will help those kids. So I feel now like responsible to come away with like um, resources for these disadvantaged children, you know, especially the outdoor recreation, because like I've seen the amount of change that it has had in them exposing them to these situations, because like in climbing, there's a natural experience that teaches you a lot. And a lot of it's subtle, like just group dynamics and these things that you talk about with insecurity. Like imagine a a 12 year old being not having like any mental challenge other than um, something that's emotional, whereas insecure, he's so insecure that he's like trying to hurt you and can't read um, and can't really write. And you see like these experiential hands-on things have changed them so much. And like coworkers don't really understand because they've never done that before. You know, and and now that I walk away from that to do something that's of service to it's a remote job. I'm not do serving my local community, but I'm making more money 
I feel like I'm like obligated, you know, sorry for that rant. It's just, especially in light of like the, like the George Floyd stuff. Um, I, I feel like, you know, there's some level of obligation, like a civic duty that kind of goes over a lot of like my head and a lot of my peers heads. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, I appreciated your rant. Um, I, and it wasn't a rant. It was, it's your story, man. And, uh, you know, I think, I think with those type of jobs, uh, my dad's a social work professor. Um, he just retired. Um, you know, they're hard and you can only do them to the point of burnout. And then there becomes a, a point where, um, you know, it's time to move on. And that's, I'm sure you saw coworkers come and go as you did that. Oh, yeah. It's part of the deal, but, uh, yeah. you know, I, I imagine you're going to find yourself, uh, giving back in some way or another as you're able to, um, over the years, I think it's, it's just so important. Yeah. Cause I gave, even like in the sense of climbing, I'd go back and forth. I'm like, yeah, I learn all these interpersonal things from climbing. It's like, and sometimes I was like, well, how can I remove this job to increase more time for some climbing? And then I thought, wait a minute there's these kids are getting some direct benefit off of the thing that I'm getting from climbing. And now I am trying to think about that where it's like, okay, in my community, how do I apply this skill set? You know, whether it's even your paid profession, um, to just be with other people. I've even done it with my own family, you know, like, and even in terms of like the coronavirus and, and like the kind of emotional turbulence that there would be in all different kinds of communities that I was a part of, it was really easy to steel myself against like that, like emotional panic, you know, and easy to comfort people in that. And mm -hmm. I liken that to having to comfort myself on like the edge of a really big precipice, almost wetting myself. So. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um so what's your how's your work-life balance um being a nurse and with climbing is it are they in, yeah it's good man you know i mean you got to add another big factor in and that's family um you know so it's good you know i mean full-time work for me is uh three 12-hour shifts a week um so that leaves four days off um that's amazing right you know yeah I mean, we work our butts off generally those three, those three shifts, they're, they're butt kickers. Um, I also, I work per diem, so I am able to somewhat, i basically can somewhat make my own schedule. Um, and so I give up, I, I give up my benefits, uh, and, and for the freedom to make my own schedule and also the risk of not having any work. Um, yeah. so, you know, it's, it's a fine line and so far it's gone well and I don't think it will forever. And I'll have to, uh, maybe get a few different per diem jobs, but that's okay. But, you know, I have four days off a week and, uh, the balance really, for me, it comes down to, uh, training. And basically when I show up at the crag, I've done my homework and it's time to crush, you know, yeah. um, it's like really outdoor climbing, uh, it's rare that I'll get more than one day a week. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times that's like a half day, you know, locally at a crag. Is that because uh, being a parent? Being a parent. Yeah. And honestly, like, I don't want to spend that much time away from my family, you know. Um, yeah, I have two daughters. They're, they're ages five and seven. Aw. Yeah, it's awesome, man. Mm -hmm. My it's son's like, eight. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I would keep my girls like right where they're at forever. Cause oh yeah, <laughs> it's it's killer, man. They are so fun. Uh, it's funny. I was just telling somebody this paradigm where like or the shift where like 
you know, when they're born and they're babies, especially as the guy, you're not that help. I mean, you're helpful, but they want mom, you know, yeah. at least in my circumstance, the first couple of years. And you're, you know, as a climber, maybe somebody with hobbies, it's like, okay, eventually they'll be in school and it'll be awesome. Cause they'll be gone from, you know, eight to three every day and I'll go climbing and I'll go do this. And then what my wife and I have experienced is by the time, by now we're at that age and it's like, they're going to be gone all day long. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to miss them, you know? <laughs> and so we actually, we, we've gone back and forth. We do some homeschooling, um, which is amazing. We just get to yeah. see more of our girls and, uh, awesome. you know, so that's, it's pretty funny. So, you know, uh, I mean, honestly, like people I think would be surprised to understand how, how little I actually go rock climbing um, just because of my lifestyle yeah, because of the family, because of the job. Um, but you know, I kind of like my, my, my agenda or my plan, uh, the last few years is to make it count. You know, when I go there, I have my homework done. I'm strong. I'm rested. You know, I'm dialed in with a partner. We're choosing the right objective, um, you know, via weather and abilities and, uh, you know, go crush it. I mean, that does not always happen. Climbing is a really, really hard sport. And if you're going to push yourself, you're going to have a lot of failure. Um, but so, you know, I have a, I have my own, uh, climbing wall at home. I have a moon board. Nice. yeah, it's great. I highly recommend a moonboard to it's anybody that can man. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, I have weights and hangboards and all that. And uh, so, yeah, generally I train three to four. I would say, I, yeah, I train two to three days a week and then go out climbing one day a week. And that that's, it can be hard when you're, when you're away from your kids. Cause I've had situations to where like, I've got to do some of my like dream Alpine routes and maybe it was just sometimes the climbing partners kind of affect it too, for some weird reason. But like I'll get in that space where I'll just be like missing my son and it'll feel like a, like a lead weight in my heart, man. It's like, it's so hard. It's changed it to where I've had to, at first when I was getting into the Alpine climbing, I'm like, I got all of these objectives and I'm, I could just crush them like quick and fast in the summer. And now it's like, I'm just going to go cragging and hang out with my son. I got a few Alpine objectives that I really want to get, but like, I've just, I've even in the past year or two, I've gotten to that place where it's like, I just really want to hang out with my son. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a great place to be, man. It's funny, you know, and you know, climbing, I mean, climbing is a really selfish sport. Um, you know, uh, I mean, most sports are right, but yeah, I don't know. Climbing is just, it's, it's valuable for me. And, you know, and I, I will say, I do get a lot of feedback about, you know, old trip reports I have or Instagram posts or whatever people are. Oh, that was so inspiring. I'm so psyched. So, I mean, I guess there is a little bit of, you know, inspiring other people and whatnot, but it's a selfish sport. And so, and you know, somewhat, somewhat useless sport. And so, but, but, but then like, then again, it's like what you, what you give, you receive and what you receive, you give, like I I've met, I've met people who, who are parents and who've like developed this narrative of self martyrdom. And like, I think there's some sort of archetype that, that exists uh-huh. where like they, um, they disavow everything in their life or all the things that they want to do, right. Their, their pleasures for their children, um, 
and even beyond the pleasures, I, I should even say like passions, curiosities, interests, right. Wouldn't make a trip unless it was like the completely kid centric. Um, and I've just, I've like, I've seen a lot of, I mean, like I can count people on, on that level, at least less than 10, but more than five, um, bankrupt individuals who would have a hard time, like connecting with their, with their children, you know? And that's like what they, what I, I hear from like these, not that I'm really into it, but spiritual leaders, which is like being fit for service. And like, there has to be some level of like self care so that you can be fit and able to take care of, um, you know, people, uh, whether it's your, your family, um, or even friends or even professionally. And that's what, like, I've seen at my job, but applied to like a parent, you know, um, not saying that you go and like crush five out of the, um, seven days a week, but <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. just like that balancing, not balancing it the other way and just completely get, like all your time is spent around your children. You know, I've seen that pretty destructive at times, you know, sure. and sometimes yeah. sad. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think like the, I, I have taken like I've been a dirt bag for like four months back uh, with my wife back in our 20s. And uh, in general, I find that like. I'm definitely like 12 days is kind of my max for a big trip. And I mean, that's rare. That's like once every couple of years do I actually like, you know, get to take a trip that long. Um, but you know, like the dirtbag lifestyle is not for me, you know, van life, road life away from my family. Um, you know, so I will say as far as like, I mean, my thirties, I was really productive climber. Um, you know, I was, I moved to Leavenworth when I was 30 and immediately connected with a great crew. Um, and you know, I spent seven, eight up to 10 years. I mean, we were on fire and the, the psych was infectious. And, and back then it was like, my goal in the summer was two big objectives a week. Really? Yeah. Wow. And then four doubles, we'd work four double shifts as a waiter. Yeah. And and then a rest day. (laughs) 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 And like, you know, uh, but that's what your thirties are for, man. You know? And that was, that was like coming out from like, is like my experience. Like I had my son when I was 17 and I was a stepdad when I was 13 and I've kind of been playing the whole parent thing. So I'm like, I'm flip flopped. I think like all my, like there's these things that battle with inside of me was, and I think it's like the developmental thing. You've talked about it. I've had a few other guests talk about it as well. Like those college years in terms of like taking on risks and doing adventures, you know, um, yeah. seem to be like, it's like the ripe time when, when people have that, that's stoke. Um, but being a father, like I'm 25 and my son's eight and I'm watching like these inside of me, there isn't that person that's settled. There's that one person who's like, Oh, I'd like to just go and, you know, um, do all these Alpine adventures and I can stay out here. Like when I'm cracking, like from sun up to sundown, that's perfectly fine. But like, you know, then I'll look at my son, like, and oh no, I'm a father. And 
I want to be doing these other things. I want to go home. I want to go watch a movie with them. I want to make some hot cocoa and I want to hang out. But like these two things are constantly in my head, you know, and and almost competing for my attention. Um, And I think it's like, like, I feel like that person that you, you did in your thirties. Right. But my role is, is the person that you are in your forties or fifties. And there isn't like direct resentment. It's just, yeah, it's, like two different personalities sometimes. Yeah. I mean, we've lived like pretty opposite paths really um, as far as timelines. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that would be interesting. I got a lot of this shit out of my system in my thirties uh-huh. um, and I climbed a lot of stuff. I mean, I really, uh, as you know, I, I've done less and less of the Alpine rock climbing in the last couple of years. Um, but that's cause I did so much of it. I remember last year we were, did a big house project and I was pretty fatigued. You know, it was a year, year, year of hard work. And I had a few moments where I was like, how the fuck did I do all that climbing? <laughs> like, how was I so motivated, like in nursing school or with kids and a new <laughs> career? Like, I mean, I would get home from a 12 hour shift and I would be packing my bag, you know, <laughs> till like 10 30 or 11. I'd be up at four. We'd be out the door. I'd be home at two in the morning. And then I'd like sleep for four hours and go to work. Um, and I just like, I just, I'm glad I, I just, it, my climbing, it happened at the right time for me. Yeah. You know? um, and I mean, one thing is like, it's funny because at the time, a lot of my climbing partners had less going on in their lives. Uh-huh. So I was always like a little jealous. I was like, man, I got it so hard. I'm in nursing <laughs> school and like got kids, a full-time job, you know, uh, at, least, at least towards the end of my thirties, but uh, that's all bullshit. I'm, you know, very <laughs> I'm very privileged and, uh, you know, um, it's, it's good to, it's good in my forties now. I, I, yeah, I'm less, uh, I mean, I have objectives. I've definitely become more of a sport climber and trying to push my grades there. Mm-hmm. Um, I've climbed a lot of the things I want to climb in the mountains. I maybe have like seven objectives Dude. like that I want to climb ever. You're an Alpine crusher, man. Like some of those (laughs) strip reports that I'd read, like in your first descent on what Mount Stewart, like, oh my God. (laughs) King Kong. That was a voyage, man. I put some effort into that thing for sure. Um, no, it's cool. It's good to have all that stuff done. I like, I have four objectives for kind of this season. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, you know, I'm always just happy if I can climb one or two. Um, but it's like, it's pretty nice now to have whittled the list down mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, can be less obs- obsessive about it. Um, and I am in generally just less obsessed with the Alpine rock. I mean, I used to just be all in, I would be dreaming about these routes all winter long, yeah. you know, and just, I mean, the crew I was with, we would always be talking about them and just training for them and thinking about them. And, uh, you know, now it's like I kind of know they're there and I know what it's going to take and uh, hopefully show up ready. And, you know, yeah, um, at some points in your life, that obsession's like a sickness, like like I don't mean in a bad way. I mean, like in the way where it's like it is a real obsession because if it's anything like I've experienced or some of my partners, like you'll be pouring over 
routes like every day, like in the morning while you're eating food, <laughs> like yeah, always on the back of your mind. It's such a weird thing because I've never had anything draw me that 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 hard before. You know, like I guess what I'm saying uh, is like it's kind of a relief to be through those obsessive years. Yeah. You know, and to be, you know, pretty well established in my climbing career and know how to train and know what it takes. And uh, it's nice not to be OCD about that shit anymore. <laughs> it's, it's hard, man. I definitely like I have found myself a few August and September just like burnout, man, just done. Just like. You know, you're like, okay, and then next week, and then next week, and then, man, uh -uh. I'm not packing my bag. I'm not hiking in the mountains. I'm not scaring myself above my gear. I'm going to go sit by the river and drink some beer. (laughs) (laughs) So it's definitely, it's just good to kind of mature through that phase. But at the same time, I'm just so, you know, so thankful that, uh, you know, right place, right time, um, you know, had those productive years. And that like that kind of mindset and that paradigm shift, um, do you what separates that from like that, uh, like a growing complacency and like throwing in the towel and like abandoning the thing that you love? I'm not saying that you are. It's when I look at things, I get afraid of that in my own decision making, you know, Uh just, just losing it. Well, I mean, it's good to have that voice that's asking you that question, you know, like, are you throwing in the towel? Are you giving up? Um, yeah, I don't know what the, I mean, as long as you're still asking yourself that question and trying to, I mean, in the end, it's like, you know, train, train, climb smarter, work less, you know, um, you know, be more efficient, be better at recovery. I mean, that's like basically my forties is like the big lesson here is like quality over quantity and fucking don't hurt yourself Yeah, and recover. You know, I've, I've actually spent the last couple of years injured, um, you know, all through those whole thirties, man, I have like no, really no injuries. Really? Um, wow. And, uh, I was able to like, when I moved to Leavenworth, I really got into bouldering. I was able to boulder up to V nine, mm-hmm. um, you know, moved into becoming a five twelve trad climber, five thirteen sport climber through that very little injuries. And, uh, I hurt my shoulder on my 40th birthday. Oh. <laughs> and uh and you know as soon as that healed which was about six weeks uh i totally shredded my elbow acutely oh and, my gosh you know i mean in the end like uh i knew i would have to pay my dues one day yeah um and there was lessons and i soaked those lessons up and i was just i feel fortunate i got through my 30s without injury i've learned a lot from these injuries in my 40s it, it took me like 16 months to heal my elbow oh wow that's a long lot of, lot of diligence a lot of research um but it it taught me what climbing in my 40s is and it's just like much very disciplined and smart you know did you did did your um, your ability to climb a certain grade did that go down when you were um, after you rehabbed your injury? It plateaued. Yeah. Or like, I mean, I just got through the rehab process like three months ago. Oh, okay. Um, I just wonder what goes on in the in your head like that, and you know, 
being injured and coming, coming into back into your sport and um, assessing where you're at. Cause sometimes I know that could be kind of mentally challenging to reconcile. With. Oh yeah. Is it all over? Will I ever climb hard yeah, again? Yeah. <laughs> Is this it? You know, I mean like bad elbow injuries are like, I historically they've been career enders for climbers, you know, um, because it's so hard to heal them to heal that, that soft tissue, that tendon, that ligament. Um, and one that gets used so much. So no, I had all those questions. Um, and, but I w- would not fucking give up, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was a slow process. I mean, I remember when I was a year into it and I was still injured, I was like, dude, it was, it was on Thanksgiving. Um, and I was like, I'm still fucking injured. Uh, and I had done like, I had done thousands of like reverse wrist curls, like so much rehab and it was so incremental and, and, and how well it did, but I really did stay, uh, I stayed really active in trying to figure out how to overcome this elbow injury. And it wasn't until right at the end that I kind of came upon kind of a newer protocol that helped a lot, but yeah, I had, I had those questions for sure. Um, and I think that's the big as a climber in my forties, you know, that's always going to be the question. I mean, I'm still planning on climbing the hardest routes ever. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't recover like I used to. And, um, so it, it takes a smarter approach a more disciplined approach. Um, the nice thing about climbing is it's a skill sport mm-hmm. that requires strength. And so I have over the years become a better climber. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, through the last couple of years when I haven't been able to train as hard or do certain things, uh, I was weaker, but I was still like last summer, I was able to climb a 13, a sport climb and do some five, 12, five, 12 trad climbing the mountains. And, you know, I really, it was, I went on a trip to Bishop this year and I showed up, this is after the house project weaker than ever. And I was like, okay, this is where like the old man technique comes in. <laughs> And, you know, you're going to technique your way up these routes, you know, and uh, it was good for me. Um, That's great. So now, yeah, I'm actually, I'm feeling stronger than ever now and I'm fucking stoked. (laughs) Yes, it's awesome. That's the thing I liked about climbing was I'd go to like crags throughout Washington and see like 60s, 70s, 80s. And it was incredible because, you know, in my, I guess, culture, I don't know, um, the places that I grew up. A lot of people, by the time you're 50, it's like, yeah, I'm just chilling. Like, you know, I'm throwing in the towel. Like, it's, I'm getting old. My body's going to start break, it's starting to wear down on me. Um, and, you know, time to start slowing down. But, nope, like, I see all these people out there, and whether they're crushing or they're just being outside. You know, there's even, like, beyond climbing looking at like the hiking and the running side of things, right. Just moving in the wilderness um, and how sustainable it can be. Uh, There's this lady and she's in her like nineties, I believe. And she goes up to Rainier like every year. And she's just, and she's been doing it ever since like people have photos with her in her (laughs) sixties, like, or maybe a little, yeah, maybe somewhere right around there. And it's just, it's cool. And she's just still like still crushing it, still happy. Um, And it also goes to show you that like, well, with climbing, you're, you continue to push the grade, but I imagine your expectations your, of your performance is pretty relative, right? Like you're not always going to get, you're not going to always be pushing the grade for your whole life. Like there's some sort of satisfaction you get out of it beyond progressing in that realm, right? 
For sure. You know, like, you know, I'll get on like a five eleven plus, you know, and then like, let's say I'm an onsite or maybe I've climbed it before. Like now it's like, okay, I am going to climb this flawlessly, you know? And so that's like, you know, yeah, I'm not climbing a harder grade, but uh, I'm going to climb it perfect, you know? Yeah. Um, so absolutely. And uh, yeah, just like being able to tap more into like kind of the flow state, um, you know, easier. And uh, I mean, there's so much to learn with climbing um, outside of like, you know, the strength and the power and the pushing the grades. Like, uh, yeah, it's a, it's great. You know, you uh, mentioned the old timers. Uh, there's a local guy named Jim Phillips. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've heard of him. Oh, um, he's in his seventies, I believe. I'm not sure his age, um, but he is a prolific first ascensionist still. Oh, you know, he lives up icicle and, uh, he's just, it's always awesome when you run into him in the Canyon. He's, I mean, I feel like what I see is that he's as stoked now as he was as a kid, super motivated and he's out there just, you know, I mean, the icicle Creek Canyon is one of those places where like every time I go up it and look around, I'm just like, man, this place is amazing. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, but so, you know, he's, he's an inspiration. Um, so I hope to climb, you know, I mean, I will climb my whole life to whatever degree that is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It really seemed like it's just like lock and key, that thing that, that meant the world to you. Gorillas in the mist. The first ascent of that route was, 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 it was just a real memorable experience. Um, just, you know, it was, so I think that was the first time that my friend Jens Holston and my other friend Blake Harrington climbed together. Um, and those two went on to, you know, there's a video out there that I recommend for the Cascade Climbing Enthusiast called the uh, Enchanted Triple, where um, I guess I connected those guys. Um, they went on to link up, do this incredible link up in the Stewart Range where they climbed. Um, let it burn on Kolchak Balance Rock, uh, Dragons of Eden on Dragon Tail, and then Dare Sportsman on Prusik Peak, uh, all within 24 hours. Whoa. Yeah, it's amazing, and it's a great video. Um, I actually watched it today to get my head, like, back into, like, okay, get some, like, Cascade Alpine psych, because it's yeah. super inspiring video. Um, but, uh, so... So all, th- all three of us went to go climb this line on the west face of CB of uh, Mount Stewart, and I remember Jen's. We're you know Blake and I were like, hey, it looks like it's gonna be stormy, and Jen's was like, no way, dude. I was in the range yesterday. We'll be in t-shirts on the summit, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and he's like, I'm not even bringing a backpack. Oh my um, god. <laughs> And then Blake's like, ah, ah, Jens, I don't, you know, this, he's saying these things. I've never climbed with him. I'm excited to, cause he had heard of Jens, but you know, this is okay. And, uh, you know, we, we head up there with a somewhat dubious, um, weather report, which generally is not my thing. I tend to like choose my objective, the one that's going to get sent. Cause you know, I try mm-hmm. to be, uh, uh, have as many successes as I can. Yeah. Overall, because, yeah, you can really just get, you know, you got to pick the right objective for the right time. Stack the odds in your favor. Yeah. But we I think in the back of our heads, we knew we were kind of forcing it with the weather Um, and we're going to climb this line that had been attempted 
Um, and people had been very hush hush about, um, about the line, but you know, there was this unclimbable section, um, that people couldn't make it through. And so, you know, I remember we, we hiked in and it was really windy and there was clouds whipping by us. And then I remember like looking up at the face with Jens and it's this, you know, I don't know, maybe a thousand foot face and it's really steep and there's clouds whipping by it and we're trying to piece out a line and this is really intimidating terrain. Um, I mean, I guess this story is known cause I wrote a long blog post about it, but, uh, you know, we just started up, up this splitter crack and, um, and it just, it just came together. Um, and we fought through, we fought through the storm and Jens had this incredible heroic lead across what became the monkey traverse where we couldn't see him. He had gone like up and to the left and then he was traversing right and it was all overhanging. We couldn't see him wow. and we would just hear him. He was like ripping off blocks and hucking them over his head oh and gosh. And like grunting and screaming and dry heaving. And I had climbed with Jens and I mean, he can, when he's, when he commits to a pitch, like he's all in. Um, and so I knew it was serious, but I also had experienced that before. And so I was like, you know, okay, Jens is doing his thing. And Blake was like, wide eye, like, is he okay? What's going on? <laughs> I was like, it's totally cool. It's Jens, dude. He's just trying to send like, you know, you got it, buddy. And, uh, and you know, that was like, that was the pitch that people hadn't been able to free, uh, or at least get through. And he got through that. And, uh, you know, we, we we got about halfway up the wall and it really kind of started like the mist kind of became more of a drizzle and the rock got wet and we tried to go straight up. I remember I tried this pitch and I like slid out of the crack oh. and it was just too wet. Um, but we were super committed, you know, 600, 700 feet off the ground on overhanging terrain with like a, I guess we had two ropes with us, two skinny ropes. That was good. But uh so we traversed off to the right and then we kept going um, up and the storm intensified and uh, and we eventually topped out the face and got on the West Ridge and kept going towards the summit. And uh, that was a pretty I mean, we were just really committed to that point. We were basically on the flanks of Mount Stewart in a storm, um, you know, with very little gear. And the plan was for Blake and I to simul climb because I wasn't really comfortable with soloing. I don't, I don't think Blake was, but Jens was. He knew the West Ridge well, so he was soloing. We were simuling. And there was like a two-hour period where we lost Jens. Oh, oh God. And we didn't know. We didn't know where he was. We couldn't hear us. I mean, the wind's whipping. Um, it's really cold. Our cams are starting to freeze shut. Um, there's rhyme that's on the rock and, what, what, and we really you, are. How do you feel that? emotionally at that time? <laughs> oh, pretty strung out for sure. Like, I mean, there was like, yeah, we couldn't quite be stoked that we had just sent this rad route. Um, cause we were just all in. And so, yeah, I was nervous, uh, for sure. We all were, um, but like really didn't have the time to think about that, you know, 
it was like, it was this nervousness, but you, you know, I remember, yeah, I do remember like not being able to like really acknowledge those feelings and just like looking ahead. And it was just, we were all socked in. We couldn't see anything. Oh my um, gosh. and just thinking about, I mean, really it was like, what's the safe passage through the next 15 feet that I can see, um, you know, looking at our topo, you know, uh, there's some spire on the West Ridge called Long Dong Tower and being like, just I remember, we'd be like, is that Long Dong? No, do you think that's Long Dong? And like, we had no idea. Like, oh, I, to this day, I don't think I've ever actually seen that tower. <laughs> but uh, we just kept going. And we, you know, I, I think I think one of what I wrote in my blog was that, you know, we unri- un- unraveled high on the angry mountain, you know, like um, I was definitely scared when Jens was gone for two hours, like, two you know, hours? and I don't think about two hours. Wow. Um, and I, I think he wasn't that far from us, but it was so windy. We just couldn't hear him. Uh-huh. Um, and I was worried, but like, I did have a, like a pretty tight connections with Jens. Even at that time, we'd only been climbing, I think a year together, but I just kind of felt like he was okay. Yeah. Um, out there on his own. And we eventually connected back with Jens it was just storming and gnarly and he wanted to keep going. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, because like that, you know, keep going means maybe summoning, going home and eating food and drinking beer. Um, you know, that's a nice, that's a nice perspective, but I called it. I was like, no way, dude, this is too dangerous. Mm-hmm. We're shivering right here for the night. Like I'm calling it. And so we all hunkered down and it was at that point where we were like, dude, we sent that route. That was sick. You know, we finally were able to like talk about it, um, process and process it. And like, we were impressed with, I mean, everybody was impressed with everything they did. It, it was, it's funny now because I think Blake is definitely the stronger climber of us three. I think at that time he was not. And so all the leads were perfect. You know, Jen's got the hard, you know, first part and the gnarly traverse. I got the middle section, which was easier, but had some runouts in it. Um, and then Blake got kind of this moderate section after the traverse and it was all kind of just worked out perfectly for us. Um, you know, we had two backpacks, uh, some wind shirts, uh, we froze our asses off. Um, and there's some funny videos. I remember, uh, we had like two Werther's originals. That was the only food we had left. Oh my gosh. And like, I remember we, we ate one, we split one, like we broke it into three chunks and we enjoyed that at the bivy and we were laughing and we were stoked. We were so cold. Um, but so stoked and like, you know, we're like huddled together, you know, all spooning it, whatever. And just, I remember the relief of not having to keep climbing up the mountain, but then also like really like having a great experience with these guys pushing ourselves hard. Um, and you know, our water bottles froze overnight. I remember like at one point we were all just like shaking uncontrollably in our little bivy spot. It was like the sloping ledge. Like we were so cold. Oh my God. And then as soon as it, it, as soon as like the first, you know, glimmer of dawn was there, you know, we're like, okay, let's move. And we had that last Werther's original and we broke it up. And I remember starting to move up the mountain together. I think we were simul climbing. Maybe no, we were still doing the, the two simul one solo deal. 
and my body was starting to get warm. And then I had the sugary taste in my mouth and I was like, okay, this is good. And the storm had stopped. It was starting to like rise into a clear day. And, uh, we pushed on up to the summit and, you know, that our first glimpse of sun was on the summit and it was just amazing. And just, I remember being up there on the top and realizing what we had just pulled off and, uh, and then I definitely felt like I was just at the right time in the right place with the right friends. Um, you know, I was really lucky to move to Leavenworth when I did to hook up with Jens and Blake and our friends, Max Hassan and Ryan Paulsness and Cole Allen, Jessica Campbell. Um, I mean, for like 10 years, you know, we just ran around putting up first ascents all over the place, whether it was uh, boulders or alpine routes. And, uh, you know, we had our own little golden era. Um, and, you know, looking back now, I talked to Jens about this. We were so lucky. Uh, we're just so fortunate. And we didn't know it at the time. We knew everything was rad. And like the only place we were going was up like that was just like what's next what's next what's next oh guess what guess what jess did oh did you hear cole just sent this new v10 oh max is crushing right now he just onsighted this you know and it was uh we didn't know it at the time but it was just a really special time and you know being on top of that summit soaking up the sun um we were right in the middle of it right then, you know? And so, you know, eventually we, we went down and actually that was my wedding anniversary that day. And, uh, you know, my wife woke up and I was overdue from putting up a first ascent on Mount Stewart. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, this is before sat phones. Uh, I still don't have one, but I want one or at least like an in reach or whatever. So no, no way to communicate. And, uh, so there was urgency and we knew it. And so we were moving as fast as we could. And, uh, so she had woken up and had went and, um, roused our neighbor who's Joe Perrier, who actually passed away in Tibet, uh, a number of years ago, but, uh, Ginny and Joe and his wife, Michelle were really tight and, uh, roused Joe out of bed and he was on it. He's like, okay, our house is command center. Who knows the face? And, uh, Jenny's like, I think Max does. And so got Max and, uh, we eventually us, me and Blake and Jens, we got back to the car and we had these beers stashed in the Creek and we were drinking beers and they were amazing. And, uh, and we started driving away towards home and a little bit, you know, half mile in, we see those guys, they're like, start to pass us. And then we stop, we back up we're like, dudes, you're okay. We're like, we are, and we, you know, we get us a storm and we had to bivy and it was really cold. And they're like, dude, we got some worried people back home. Like, let's go. <laughs> like, dude, you're our rescue party. Whoa. Thanks you guys. You know, um, they went home, you know, and ate sandwiches in the sun in the backyard of our newly purchased, like fixer upper. And, uh, <laughs> You know, uh, just it was pretty badass. You know, I went on to do two more to like direct finish that line, make it more direct a couple times and uh, spent a lot of years on that face and uh, definitely a, a part of me up on that mountain still. What was your relationship when you're spending a lot of years on that face? You just love like the features out there. Like what drew you to that at that point? You know what drew it to me? I mean, we did this first ascent and 
you know, I told you about like sliding down the rock because mm-hmm. um, it was so wet. Like, okay, we're going to go this way. Blake takes off. He's doing this like big block traverse right to easier ground. And I look up and I saw this, this head wall just emerged out of the clouds. Like the clouds parted and I saw this head wall and it looked like this blocky, like top of a, of the empire state building is what mm-hmm. I thought in my head. And there was this splitter crack, like right through the middle of it. And I was like, you know, I mean, a big flaw with the original gorillas route is this traverse and then moderate section. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it was like, I just, I got to straighten this line out. Um, and it's going to be classic. And so, yeah, motivation for me was like climbing that crack uh, up on that head wall. And that vision I had of, you know, the the clouds parting and there it was. And I was like that, that's where this line needs to go. It's all just contextual when you're out there, certain things for whatever reason, they'll just like strike you. And then it kind of is obsession, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, my friend Jen's really taught me about obsession. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, I mean, he's probably the first one to say he's battled with it over his lifetime. Um, and I mean, through both Blake and Jens, I've learned that like, if you are going to send these hard routes in the mountains, it does take uh, a bit of obsession. Um, and you kind of have to not give up. And, um, like another lesson I've learned from those guys is like, when it's on, it's on, like, you know, if you want to send this route, like that kind of needs to be your focus now, Mm. you know, and you got to put, put everything into it. Um, so sending that thing just took like repeated, like, like never say die. Like I am not, (laughs) not giving up on this line, you know, nursing school, new job, first kid, second kid. Like I just kept coming back. Um, eventually, eventually climbing it. Um, just filled with determination. Yeah. I was not going to let that one go, you know? Um, is that, um, well, it seems like the people that you're climbing with were almost like a, a part of your like tribe in that way. And that word gets thrown around a lot. Really what I mean is like the relationship that you had to those people, you were really, really close with them. And like, sounds like constantly feeding off of each other. It was awesome, man. I was just so lucky to hook up with those guys. Um, that's absolutely what it is, you know? Um, so these guys had spent a lot of time down in Yosemite. I think they had all like, like Jess Campbell and Ryan and Cole and all those guys uh, had been dirtbagging it, you know, in California for years. And um, you know, down there, you know, they were friends with like Renano's Turk and Charlie Barrett. And, you know, I think they roughly called themselves down there, the stone monkeys. Um, and, you know, I became part of the tribe of the L-Town monkeys. Wow. The, you know, those guys all lived, uh, in Peshastin in this, uh, old, broke down house, the brown house of Shaston, and it always had traveling climbers sleeping. Like it was a tiny house. No way. But it always had traveling climbers sleeping on the porch, on the, you know, in the living room, on the floor. And, uh, you know, it was always like, okay, what are the monkeys up to? I don't know. I think, you know, Cole's doing this and he's doing this. And, uh, uh, it was infectious. Uh, 
we just, we just had this feeling, there was this feeling in the group, like we could do anything we wanted uh-huh. as far as abilities, like, and there's, there's, you know, we're just, we, we were in our playground. Um, and it's like, we, those, those days are long gone for us. You know, yeah. Leavenworth has blown up. There was, it was at that time that you would go up the Canyon and you would see a few cars and you'd probably know who that was. Whoa. Um, I mean, it has changed drastically since then. Yeah. Um, and that's fine. Uh, I have, you know, I have no problem. I mean, you know, it's busy and a bit unsustainable, but, uh, <laughs> you know, at the time it was just, uh, we just had it good and we took advantage of it. Man. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's wild, man. And I almost think like, I feel like climbing, like one of the best way to describe it to someone who's in terms of like the relationship that you have with other people and kind of how, what that like level of adventure feels like. It always reminded me of like Lord of the Rings and like climbing the route itself would be like, you know, the whole climax of the story. Right. And all the risks that you, you don't get to like be in physical peril where, like the evil guy is going to kill you and you just elude him and get past it. Like you don't get any of those feelings, but really you do. Cause the only way you can generate it is, is like being in like a rock climbing sense, or maybe you're doing like a, a river rafting trip, right? Like where all those dangers are very, very real. And you really have to depend on one another and like constantly, I don't know what it's like mentally for, for you for climbing for that many years, but like you feel like you're in danger, you know, at all these different times, like obviously with your story, like there's points of like real danger and real concern throughout. Um, and I don't know if you can get that anywhere else, you know, like I hear people in the, um, in the military, like, um, not everyone, but that level of like excitement, that you have, um, when you're out there and, you know, being in that, that, uh, that highly like those experiences where there's a lot of risk and it's all the onus is on you. Right. And the people around you and like the sense of belonging and intensity there, like people crave that when they come back to like civilian life. But you know, when you're climbing, like, it's just, it feels like that so much, you know? Yeah. You know, I definitely, over the years, I, I mean, nowadays, uh, I definitely doing less of that hard adventure for ascending, <laughs> if any, and it's, it's pretty refreshing to kind of leave that chapter behind. I wouldn't say it's totally done, but I'm not really going to launch myself onto unknown, you know, faces, you know, yeah. first ascents on big, hard faces, uh, right now with, you know, my girls. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it's nice to focus more on like repeating hard, you know, five twelves and up in the mountains. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're going, you're going to battle in some ways, you know, I mean, we're yeah. battling our way up that, up those mountains. I, I mean, I'm not gonna say it's anything near what you would experience in war. Cause that's yeah, exactly. horrific and tragic and, you know, really, you know, will change you mentally, you know, yeah. forever, if not kill it's you. Very, it's but, it's uh, very real in that sense too. Yeah. 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 But, uh, that's about as adventurous as you can get, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and also it's about as much as you could prove yourself, you know, as with anything. And that's how I feel. I see it in martial arts all the time where like just someone really understanding what their human potential is, you know, 
how far can they push themselves? What are they capable of? And like, I just, I don't think you could ever be judged to find that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean by that? Like, sure. Yeah. And it's yeah. wild. Cause like, um, even in like a team element, you get that from, you know, I don't know. It's I've never been done team sports or anything like that, but that like the one-on-one connections that you get from people is pretty magical, you know? Yeah. I'm definitely like a sports documentary buff, you know, like the 30 for 30 series. And like, you know, I, I just, just like dig like athleticism and like, you know, the story of athletes pushing their limits and, you know, at the same time, like, you know, these, these teams that everything went right. And, you know, this magical year, they got the championship or, you know, whatnot. Yeah. Um, you know, I find a lot of value in those stories. Uh, they're inspiring. <laughs> and uh, for sure. It's a, it's an interesting thing. Cause I used to um, put them in the bin as like, Oh, that's an athlete. And I've started to like, look at it in a different way where, Oh, that's a part of me. Like there's some part of me that has like athletic like desires and, you know, and even like in the climbing realm, like I I grew up watching TV shows where they would bunch people up as like nerds, jocks, um, you know, like socialites, so on and so forth. And I realized that like each of these individual things are just little pieces inside all of us. Yeah. And I've I've realized that through learning from like different role models, because I learned that, you know, highly intelligent, some highly intelligent people are like, like jacked or spend a lot of time on sports. Right. Like that's not a a dumb meathead thing to kind of do. Sure. Yeah. I think it's good for uh, climbers to consider themselves athletes. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I think now they finally are. I mean, it's pretty wild how popular training has gotten the last few years. Mm -hmm. Um. But, you know, you know, I, I coach a very select few people. Um, the, the problem is that I don't need another job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I work plenty, but at the same time, like coaching is really, uh, it's really, I'm passionate about it. I like it. So, you know, basically I have to have an athlete talk me into it. And then I, they, I have to vet them pretty hard. Like I want, you know, pretty hardcore commitment. Um, I'm gonna take them on as an athlete. Um, but one of the first things, you know, I try to instill in them is like, okay, you're not just a climber. You're an athlete. Mm. You know, we have to take this seriously, you know? Um, so, but there's a big shift, you know, we're going from, Oh, I'm just a dirt bag trainings for, you know, nobody climb trains and climbs, you know, and it's, uh, it's been a good shift in climbing. I mean, I think it's, we're just setting ourselves up to see this next generation is just going to blow our minds. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait because it's just just watching it kind of roll. They got the Olympics or supposed to be in the Olympics this year, right? Well, I think the Olympics were canceled. Yeah, that's what I meant. Like, it was yeah, 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 sure. Canceled. Yeah. Yeah. The flawed, like, uh, combined discipline um, climbing in the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's like uh. <laughs> it's a it's a bummer, but at the same time, like uh, I was, I definitely like I follow the World Cup, you know, climbing series, and I follow you know a lot of those athletes, and uh, it was neat watching them adapt to yeah. you know being like, okay, we complained, they didn't change it. How am I going to win this thing? I'm not a speed climber. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and the speed climbers like, okay, I'm going to win the speed. How am I going to just do okay in these next events? Um, you know, I didn't even look into it that much. I didn't realize that it was, it was um, structured that way. That's kind of, mm. 
Yeah, no, it's it's a combined combined event, you know, sport, boulder, and speed. And yeah, and really, like, I mean, it, it's definitely taking something away from it as an Olympic sport because you need to. I mean, you got to specialize, and basically, it's taking these people. You know, they're becoming more general. Um, almost like taking someone who's like doing like trying to do what like the 100 meter dash or whatever and then looking at like an ultra racer or an ultra runner right sure yeah like let's see if you could do the 100 meter dash and do an ultra run and then we'll judge whoever's like the best at running and you brought me into thinking in a different way regarding like how it's positive to for climbers to look at themselves as athletes um and what I was referring to with like people who I found were like smart, who did athletic things is like, we're all athletes. Like if you don't, if you don't train physically in, in just in some modality, right? Like your body, like cardio is so important, you know, and like some level of strength and mobility training is incredibly important. And like looking at yourself as an athlete, like what do I have deficiencies in? Where do I hurt? How can I improve those? You know, like what do I run out of breath, for instance, or do I want to be able to charge up these mountains? Like just thinking of that, like beyond the need to do it for a professional or for like a sport, right? Like your own self, like it's, it's the cornerstone of, of everything. This is your meat vehicle, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting in my forties, you know, I mean, not only do I want to be like progress as a climber, but like, this is also like, I need to be uh, a healthy human moving forward. And I, I really feel like the magic bullet, I guess there's two, um, it is strength training <laughs> and sleep. Yeah. Ooh, wait, how much sleep do you get? Like what's your, what would be your priority of sleep? Okay, how much sleep do I want to get every night? Yeah, yeah. Uh, like nine hours. Nine you hours. know, as like an amazing athlete, <laughs> um, you know, as a fully recovered athlete who's having as much you know cellular regeneration as possible overnight. Nine hours. Yeah. Um, but me personally, it's funny to I've been starting to go down the road of improving my sleep. And, uh, I don't need much sleep at all. I mean, as I told some stories, like I can sleep for two hours, three hours, and then go do a huge climb, go do a full day of work. Um, though I try to get plenty of sleep before I work. Um, and like probably 90 minutes after I wake up, I will forget that I barely slept. I will do fine. Um, you know, I mean, I think if you actually tested me, Perhaps I'm not as sharp as I could be, (laughs) but I won't think about it until like eight or nine o'clock that night. I'll be like, wow, I'm really tired. Why am I so tired? And I'll be like, oh, it's because you only slept two hours. Wow. Uh, So in general, I think I get I get between five and seven hours of sleep and I'm trying to improve that. Um, I do deal with like some insomnia. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, I mean. Uh, yeah, I think part of it is like, I am a motivated person. So a lot of times when I go to sleep at night, I'm like, okay, tomorrow I'm doing this and this and this, like, God, I wish I could just go to sleep and wake up and go do that. You know, I have that thing quite often. Um, but also like I've, you know, I think a lot of us, like a lot of us, I've taken some, uh, I've gotten some bad habits through technology over the years. Um, and I'm really trying to address that and it's, um, you know, I'm, it's starting to work. I've, uh, I, I'm starting to wear a uh, blue light blocking glasses yeah. at night from like 8 PM on and uh new rule that I've been done for like two weeks now. And it's, 
like been highly effective and really great is uh, no screens whatsoever allowed in my bedroom. Ooh, that's nice. So you can't get like trick yourself or find yourself just droning away on apps. Yeah. Put it away, you know, cause I feel like that kind of, it just fuels kind of the like social media, checking your phone addiction, um, mm-hmm. just to have it, you know, I can, I can waste time before I go to bed and not get as good as sleep. And then I can wake up and grab it and look through things and not have as, a, as productive a day. Um, yeah. It's been a real good change, but yeah, right. strength training and sleep. That's it. That's, that's my focus here. It's an athlete in my forties. <laughs> have you ever uh, swung any Indian clubs? No, <laughs> but I have seen that. I've seen you do that in your social media, I believe. See, yeah, it's, um, I don't really know how necessary it is, but <laughs> in terms of like, uh, as a mobility and for mobility and fixing your posture and also like, um, if you have any kind of like rotator cuff or shoulder issues, uh, it's, it's just amazing. And the reason being is it just, it acts as a lever. So all the weights on one end the far end basically. And Mm -hmm. every time you do these, like these circle patterns, you're basically, uh, working the posterior chain from your, um, your wrist all the way up to your, uh, your shoulder blade basically. And like, um, and it's great because you can get the blood flowing um, in in those areas, which are usually a lot harder to um, to stimulate. And you keep the weight really low. Like mm-hmm. I got like this ten pound steel one because I'm like, oh, I'm strong, and I don't want to. I don't need to get a two pound club. And I realize that it's you're not trying to like lift heavy stuff. You're just trying to get like just enough weight so you can get the motion. And mm-hmm. it's and be, because of the weight, when you have it like when you're um, almost pointing to the side of you, um, it actually creates traction in your shoulder. And so that helps all the fluid get in your, um, in the, the joint itself. But I'm just a nerd for, <laughs> for exercise modalities, man. Like it's cool. fitness is one of my favorite things so much. Nice. So where it's like, you know, I, I have problems with it, like professionally and stuff. Cause I have to get all this work done, but I'm like, well, I just want to squeeze in a little bit of club work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's interesting. I'll check that out. You know, I did want to clarify that I'm not saying that, uh, strength training is, uh, is the key component of like climbing training. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think in general, like strong things don't break. So yeah. You know, if you can have strong bodies, strong fingers, you're less likely to get injured. It does play a role. Um, but, you know, really, I'm just uh, as far as longevity and being a healthy older adult, um, you know, it's that hormonal response. It's all that testosterone from lifting heavy things um, oh, that's- or doing doing intense uh, physical exercise because you're you know, your hormones drop off as you get older. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's important to flood your body with testosterone and uh and, you know, uh, a lot of times I, you know, so as a nurse, I definitely read a lot and I'm pretty critical of most things I read. Mm-hmm. Um, just cause you have to be as a nurse it has to be like evidence-based research. Yeah. Um, but you know, like the two physical markers of mortality that correlate the best are your ability to get off the ground mm-hmm. and your grip strength. Oh, that's interesting. So, Cause yeah. you don't need to be dependent on other people 
Is, is like, is that the reasoning behind it? If I you're think so, but I mean, I think it's, you know, they just test strength in older adults and mm-hmm. they find this correlation. And yeah, I think it's your ability to be independent, um, maintain your independence. And I think when you lose independence, you know, you, you know, you slowly become less healthy as you're less mobile or whatever. Yeah. Um, so Turkish get ups and hangboarding forever. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, Turkish get-ups are the best. You're like bringing out the little, the inner kettlebell enthusiast in me. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I told my dad that and he's like, okay, I've been doing my get-ups, man. You know, he's like, <laughs> like, cause I just, I gave him a hard time. He had a hard time getting off the ground. I was like, dad, two physical markers of mortality. And he's like, well, yeah. and then like just the other day, he's like, I've been working my get-up, man. <laughs> <laughs> but he's a power putty getting my grip better. Yeah. <laughs> Get the squeeze going. <laughs> There's a great, uh, a cool concept. This is kind of similar line. This is like the Centurion, Centurion Olympics. So uh-huh. like what kind of activities do you need, do you need to be doing or want to be doing when you're like a hundred, you know, or, you know, old age, whatever you're perceiving that as. And it's like, you know, for me, it's, it's similar as like getting up, being able to open things if I need to and grab them, right. Being able to write, and also being able to pick something up from the floor, lift it to my chest and lift it overhead. Because yeah. if I'm able to lift my grandchildren, I guess that would be great, 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 great times five grandchildren with my age. But um, over my head, then, you know, it's happy. That's how like I, I've had with jujitsu is sometimes my health and well-being are directly in conflict with with my performance as a martial artist because I can push myself a lot harder, but I'm going to increase the risk that I get injured beyond my control, right? Like I'll feel pressure in my foot and I'm like, I can get out of this, but I can't really control in that situation if an injury is going to happen because now I've just increased that likelihood. And I've had to think about that a lot because that's held me back competitively from my peers. And, um, but it's important to me to, to have longevity. You know, I got really hurt in one of my shoulders and that freaked me out, man. Cause yeah. like I wasn't able to climb really. And I wasn't able to go and, you know, play do certain things with my son. And like those were important to me for, for me. That's, I realized my priorities there and, you know, for me, it's health first. Yeah. But, I mean, that's an intense sport you're doing, you know? Um, you know, uh, we, I think we've messaged before that, you know, I am with that judo background. I really do like mixed martial art. I like watching it. I'm really into the UFC. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, those guys are so committed. So all in, I mean, you talk about athletes and athleticism and you talk about commitment. Um, it's pretty funny when, you know, climbers complain, Oh, I'm too heavy or I'm not strong enough. And it's like, man, those athletes in, in mixed martial arts, I mean, they just put it all on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's funny to think about like, I mean, their weight cuts and their training camps are so intense. And then they go out in that ring and it's like, I mean, I'm going to fight till I die. Yeah. Um, There's so no leaving, you, like for you, I mean, I could see this, the struggles you want to be a climber, which takes a, you know, a body in good shape and you're also a dad. So yeah. for sure. Yeah. 
I've had times in jujitsu where they'll do something like a, it was so ironic. Um, I'm helping my friend for his competition and there he's doing something called like a heel hook. And that's usually where they, they take your one leg and wrap their legs around it. So it can't move. They're trying to isolate it above the knee and then they control your, um, your heel and they twist it. So they can basically, it's like when you fuck up on skis and tear your ACL or your MCL. And that's, that's what they're they're completely trying to twist your heel while keeping your knee in place and like not going to get injured during drilling or anything like that. But I had, I was having some injuries come up and I'm training for my 50 miler and I'm like, these are in like direct opposition right now. I have someone who's pretending to like rip my knee apart while I'm getting ready for like the longest run of my life. Like what, what's going on here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the cool yeah. thing about jujitsu is, is, is you're right. Um, but whereas MMA, uh, the difference there is with MMA and I, I even find with striking, um, that's where the commitment is, is you can't get any more committed than that, man. Cause like, that's what my kickboxing matches where it's knockout or draw. There is no way, but to finish that, like you knockout or draw. Yeah. That's why I was like, as a single dad and I'm doing these knockout or draw matches and I had just got full custody of my son. I'm like, no, I just, I can't, <laughs> I, I, I won't do this. And like, I, I was thinking about it and my son asked me something like, you know, a few months ago and he's like, dad, how would you, what happens if you just didn't want to finish? And I'm like, well, imagine that if you had to tell the ref, like, just stop, let's, let's just stop right now. Like it, you can't eat. It's hard to imagine. I've never seen it happen before. And mm-hmm. when you're in there, you're in there. And like with jujitsu, if you're, um, you know, have me in a joint lock or if you're choking me, when I've determined that it's enough, I tell you. And that is how you've won. But totally. with like kickboxing, it's like, no, you, you need to, you need to be on the ground and conscious. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like, that's a real level of commitment, man. Like, and in my, my life is the better for it. Like doing things that require commitment for some reason, like I've been just kind of snaking around it. It seems really important. And I don't really know why I don't understand like the psychology behind it, but it seems to help. Like, you know, you guys, people, my senior, um, a lot. I think you made an adult decision by stepping away from kickboxing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. And, um, just in, just in closing, cause I want to be respectful of your time, but, uh, you spent a lot of your time climbing stuff in the cascades out of that Leavenworth area, right? Mm-hmm. Was there a particular thing that drew you to that area as a whole, or was it just out of convenience? Um, you know, it was like, I mean, definitely convenience. I mean, the great thing about living here is, you know, you can wake up in your, your own bed and go climb a world-class alpine rock climb and then make it home in your bed same night. Um, but I mean, it's just, it's an inspiring place. Um, I would say at this point, I'm probably more inspired by the climbs up in Washington pass. Oh, really? That's where most of my projects are these days. Um, but I've kind of been there and done that in the Stewart range. Um, but I think for me, it was, I, in the Stewart range, I, uh, I mean, it's basically, it's like a mini bugaboos. Um, and you know, the granite is, is, quite good 
Uh, I'm going to say almost world-class. It is world-class, but it's like weathered by the Cascades. Mm-hmm. And so that's like almost world-class because it's not quite as, you know, it's not quite as perfect as the Bugaboos or Yosemite Granite. It's really, really good, but it flakes a little bit. Um, but it's an inspiring place. And I think my first route in the Stewart Range was, uh, it was a Bellingham to Bellingham trip. Uh, to climb the West Ridge of Prusik in October. And uh, it was a long, a long, I mean, we were just super gummies at that time. Did you do car um, to car? Well, yeah, it was car to car, but it was like <laughs> Be- Bellingham to Bellingham, you know? Jesus. I think we, yeah, we were like, actually it was, we were drinking beers at, uh, we were drinking beers at Boundary Bay and after work at like midnight and we got this harebrained idea to go to Prusik that night. <laughs> and, uh, so a few hours later we were driving, you know, over to Leavenworth and climb that. But early on, I decided in the Stewart range, I wanted to, I was going to spend the early part of my time here, which, you know, I live here in Leavenworth. I wanted to focus on the big four and putting something up on each of the big four mountains in the range. Um, and so for me, that was on Prusik peak, uh, Jens and I did the second ascent of dare sportsman. Mm. which is uh, incredible 11 plus one of the best routes in the range. And then, um, on Colchuk balance rock, Blake Harrington and I years ago put up the tempest wall, which, uh, we put up as a five ten C two aid climb or C one aid climb, um, through this big roof, but it really ushered off a new era of climbing on that face. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on Dragon Tail, Jens and I did, or Jens did with my support, we did the first free ascent of Dragons of Eden. And then on Stewart was the route, uh, eventually King Kong, Gorillas in the Mist, King Kong. And so, uh, you know, I don't know. These were big, badass, amazing mountains. And uh, I wanted to leave some type of mark on each one of them. For... Um for anyone out there who hasn't been there, like, could you, is there any way that you could describe it in just like few words with the, what the environment looks like out there? I mean, it's interesting now I've lived here long enough, uh, to say that it's really changed. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, back in the day we'd go up there and we wouldn't see that many people. And I will say that I'm have some responsibility to that through my trip reports and my blogging and my routes, you know, I mean, people want to climb these routes. They're awesome. Some of the best in the state. Um, and I publicized them. And so I'm part of that. I mean, a lot of it is like Colchuck Lake and Instagram culture, um, has created quite a conga line, but, uh, I mean, it is, if you've never been to Colchuck Lake, when you crest that final little hill, and you see those peaks in front of you and that lake and the color of the water. I mean, it's mind blowing. It's one of the most enchanting places there is. And um, I'll say it's like my spiritual center is, is that lake and that range because I spent so much time up there. Yeah. And uh, it's just it's just mind blowing. It's just uh, one of the most beautiful places you could ever imagine. <laughs> yeah. It's just like like literally having the most beautiful playground with infinite infinite like lines to play on as a just i say that specifically because like it does remind me of taking my son to the park 
to where he starts to become familiar with the park. He looks forward to different aspects of the park. See some, for some reason, he always finds something new to play with or a new way to play with things there. And like, you know, I don't really believe we change very much as we become adults, you know, things become, get, get more complicated and more simple. But like, I just see it's like that just playing it out, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many times I have walked up to that lake. I mean, my guess is like 60. Um, That's just a guess. I don't know. I mean, my friends, Jen's, I mean, a hundred times, right. You know, but every time I crest that ridge and I look up, I just want to, and I see it. I just want to scream. I want a monkey call across the lake. I'm just like, look at this place. This is amazing. I mean, it's, uh, it's just inspiring. And that's why it's so busy now because other people are so inspired and it is what it is. Um, you know, um, it's a special range. I hope people will continue to take care of it. And uh, through my nonprofit work, I'm going to do my part to keep to keep this area as sustainable as possible. What is your um, nonprofit work to you? So we're the Leavenworth Mountain Association. And uh, it was actually a nonprofit that I was one of the founding members of uh, back in 2012. And really for me, I had moved here in 2008 and I had seen Leavenworth kind of explode with climbing activity, specifically bouldering. And in general, the Forest Service has taken a pretty much a hands-off approach. And I think that's not on purpose. I think it's because they are a they cover a really big area and they have a lot of stuff to manage, a lot to handle. Um, and so basically I, I knew that things would, would, would change and it would get busier. And I wanted to, I mean, we, we started our organization for a number of reasons, but for me, I wanted the climbers to have a voice with the local forest service. And I wanted to take part in making it as sustainable as possible. And so for us as an organization, we work closely with the Forest Service um, to do stewardship projects at the Climbing Crags. Um, We just did a big initiative. Uh, We raised uh, just about $7,500 to put Santa Can honey buckets um, in various locations in both the Tumwater and Icicle Canyons um, just to collect poop. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Poop and pee, man. Um, You know? Um, you know, we're trying to advocate to keep climbing access open, but at the same time, we're trying to educate climbers on how to do that right, how to climb here correctly. Um, you know, leave no trace, uh, don't camp where you're not supposed to camp. Um, in the past, we had to cancel it this year. We have taken on a climbing festival called Rock Fest, and that's been our big fundraiser. And it's just great to get the whole climbing community together. Uh, celebrate climbing in Washington, climbing in Leavenworth. Uh, we created a youth climbing club uh, locally in town. Oh, and that was really actually one of my motivations was I came here and like, there was no like young local climbers, you know? Oh, what? I met a few, but they were like, yeah, I just started bouldering when I was like 17 and it's amazing. And, uh, you know, for me climbing, you know, as we've talked about climbing has had such a positive impact in my life. I wanted to, you know, pass that along to the youth. And so we got a youth climbing club and we've created some awesome climbers and great experiences. Um, I really hope one day, um, to, to be able to, and I think a lot of people in Worth want this, uh, to create a community center in town and then to have a local climbing, uh, community co-op climbing gym. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so like the clubhouse. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
for the L-Towners. Wow. So be really rad. And just that's that's so cool because I just like watch you and I imagine others as well, like burgeoning this culture in and, you know, and being the people to bring that in seems really special. Like I, I did a whole series on Dallas Cloakey and like that man was in was an enigma in some ways. But like when you see someone who they've fallen in love with an area uh, and they've fallen in love with an activity and they're like this constant source of energy you know, and just whether it's like setting routes or introducing to people, mentoring people, like it's just beautiful because they affect so many people, you know, and without them, the community would be at a loss. And it's great to hear that you're really trying to um, support that community and grow it and being very mindful about that. It's been great, man. I've been talking to my daughters a lot about it because it has taken up a bit of my time here. This like whole Santa can funding. And uh, I've had like a bunch of, uh, you know, phone call conference calls lately. And, uh, you know, I've just been explaining to them what I'm doing and uh, I'm trying to pass that kind of service down to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're getting to have a great relationship with the local forest service and, you know, working with the access fund and Washington climbers coalition and, uh, and things are coming together. And I think we're getting some good support and starting to have a, a really good voice. And, uh, and at the same time, I'm still doing work, but, you know, I was the original president and I helped kind of be the head for a while. There was times where life was busy with two kids and I want to be like, my wife, I'm like, you got to quit LMA. You got to quit. We, we need you at home. And I go to a board meeting and be like, I got to quit. My wife wants me to quit. And, uh, <laughs> and then I'd have this great meeting. I'd be like, I can't quit. It's amazing. I love it. You know? <laughs> but, but for me, like right now we have, uh, Allison Miller is our president and her husband, Mike Miller is our stewardship coordinator. And then we have like Molly rabbits. We have these great board members right now. And so in some ways I passed the buck and, you know, they're they're. I mean, some of them are near my age, but you know, the next gen, the next group of folks is really like running, like heading the helm, and uh, I'm doing what I can. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll be done. <laughs> <laughs> Two more minutes. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm watching the video and I'm eight oh, Okay. And where could people find out more about the um, Leavenworth Mountain Association? We're at leavenworthma.org. I'll make sure to leave the links to that in the show notes. Is there, are they able to like donate or support you guys in any way? Absolutely. Yeah. We have a PayPal account. They can donate. Um, you know, I can give you, I'll give you some links. We have Instagram page. We have Facebook page. Uh, we do have this GoFundMe for our Santa cans, um, which has been really successful. And to all those out there that are listening that have donated, thank you guys. You rock. We're going to collect a ton of poop and pee this year, and it's not going to go in the dirt or in the river. (laughs) You know, I think, I think, I think we're going to get somewhere, man. We're going to make climbing as sustainable as we can around here. Too bad you couldn't make the antithesis to like Santa's cousin and make it and like create a little figure and put that on Santa cans. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) All right. Sweet. Is there anywhere that people could find out more about like, um, about like your climbing your blog or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. I got a blog, uh, you know, I definitely have, and then I have an Instagram, uh, so I'll work in at Instagram.com. Um, you know, I, I have like purposely taken a step away from social media and blogging the last couple years, few years. 
Um, part of me was like my, with my ego, I was like, I, I should just send hard and tell nobody, mm. uh, socially. And so that's kind of been my approach, but, uh, I'm actually getting psyched to blog. So big check out my blog. There's a lot of old trip reports and then hopefully some new ones here as time uh, goes on. I've surely been loving all those trip reports, man. Like <laughs> it's great to, to listen to like, you know, crushers and legends of the local area that you get to be a part of, as opposed to like you know, like far off, like down in Yosemite and stuff. Cause I'll, I'll go down there, but like, I'm not going down there frequently enough that it's my home. Right. But there's people up there that I could look after as role models, um, and read about all their like crazy reports, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Uh, all right, sweet. I'm just going to hit stop. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. Um, if you'd like to check out the article about uh, Charlie Parker, you can head over to becominghumanpodcast.com or go to the show notes. You can also check out Charlie's Place at kzoocharliesplace.com. Um, if you'd like to support the Leavenworth Mountain Association, you can check out them at Leavenworth Mountain Association on Instagram. You can find Soul at soulworkedkin or soulclimbs.blogspot.com. I love to be able to talk to someone with so many, so much experience recreating and pursuing a passion that they love and even watching them transition to one that they're interested in to one that they fully and totally love from skiing, snowboarding to climbing and having to balance all of that with fatherhood. <laughs> really admire the person that soul is. And I was fortunate that I got to have this conversation with him. And I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to head over to becominghumanpodcast.com. Find us on Instagram at becominghumanpodcast. Woo! We're back. Weekly episodes for all you every Wednesday. Thank you guys for being here and supporting the show. And I'm excited to be bringing you some great content. And I hope this this helps, or at the very least, I hope it's interesting and fun, because <laughs> it's, it's fun for me. Bye.
Oh, man, what kind of power's in me? Oh, man, can you see it charting? Oh, man, what kind of fire's in me? Oh, man, can you see it burning? Oh, man.